Okay, we're going to kick off episode 310 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Kahuna Ha Ha. It's from the band Stories from Shame Hill. They're based out of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. This is from the album Same Same But Different. You can find them over at storiesfromshamehill.bandcamp.com or storiesfromshamehill.nl. When you're done listening to Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I like this song a lot. It sounds pretty awesome, doesn't it? You know what doesn't sound awesome? Me. Yes, your intrepid writer, producer, host, Derek M. Cook, is sick. I've got a monster of a head cold stuck somewhere behind the back of my nose and the base of my throat. I can't seem to get it out. I can't seem to shake it. But I guarantee you, I sound better now than I did yesterday. Fingers crossed that it continues to progress and get better and I get healthier and healthier down the line. Before I got sick, though, I went to the movie theater last weekend. I went to see Kong Skull Island with my friend Tom Doffel. Now, I brought my portable recorder along, so we do have a little bit of audio from that. But that's not the only thing you're going to get about Kong Skull Island this week. We also have an in-depth conversation with Paul McComas. Now, Paul was on the show in November and December when we did a two-parter talking about all three previous versions of King Kong with a particular focus on the 1976 film. Paul is an unabashed fan and a longtime scholar of all things Kong, and I thought it was only appropriate to have him back on to talk about this new version of Kong, Kong Skull Island. How does it rank compared to the other films? What did he think about it? Now, I'm going to tell you, we get pretty in-depth. This is a long conversation. Because of that, this episode of Monster Kid Radio is probably going to be longer than normal. I hope you're okay with that. I know I am because it's a good conversation. It does get pretty deep. We do get pretty critical. We touch on just a bit of the spiritual aspect, not really too much, more historical, some political, and just really dive deep into the film itself. Paul and I don't talk about the filmmaking per se. I mean, we mentioned the cast and the crew, that sort of thing, but we really talk more about the overall effect and the experience of watching the movie, and then more importantly, thinking about the movie. Also, we have voicemails from some of you. Some listeners of Monster Kid Radio have called in their thoughts on Kong Skull Island. So you're going to get that after the conversation with Paul. And then, depending on how I'm feeling, I may come back in with my final thoughts on the film as well. I got to tell you, the opinions of Kong Skull Island run the gamut on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. We go from the negative to the extremely positive. I think every opinion is valid, and it's fascinating to really just discuss a movie like this that can be enjoyed on a couple of different levels or maybe not enjoyed on a couple of different levels. We'll find out when we hear that conversation. Before we get to that, though, I have some emails that I'm going to torture myself by reading here on the show. Let's start with this email. It comes from Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast. Hi, Derek. Great episode on The Man Who Laughs. I really need to see this film. Let me cut in here. That's the movie we talked about on last week's episode of Monster Kid Radio. Chris continues. Like you, well, before this episode, I've only seen stills and clips, mostly in relation to the character inspiring the Joker. When I was a kid and first saw Vite as Gwynplaine, I assumed it was from an old Batman movie or movie serial. I later learned differently, and the story sounds tragic and quite intriguing. You and Mr. Starrett have now moved the movie to the top of my must-see pile. And The Laughing Man? Wow, I was riveted. Genuinely chilling. Fantastic story, acting, and production. My hat's off to the Vite radio crew. I'm definitely looking into more of their productions. Thanks for sharing. So, Vite Radio Theater is the audio drama production group that Greg Starrett is part of. 
You can find it on YouTube. There's a link in the show notes from last week's episode, The Laughing Man. It's an original story. It runs about 20 minutes, I think. There's not really a connection to the man who laughs outside of the similarity in the name and, and it coming from Fight Radio Theater. But man, I dug it. I think a lot of people out there dug it. I mean, Chris loved it. And you don't want to tell Chris he's wrong, do you? Go check it out if you haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. Chris mentioned something about Creature from the Black Lagoon that I'm actually going to sit on for now, Chris. So we'll address that down the line. But thank you for writing in. I appreciate it. And you are not the only person who enjoyed our conversation about the man who laughs. I've got an email here from Dominique Lamsis, who is a local author. She appeared on the Scarathon episode of Monster Kid Radio uh, last year, end of October, beginning of November. Scarathon was the 10 plus hour movie marathon at the Joy Cinema that I hosted. Five movies. Dominique was there for almost the entire run as well, and she was on that show. She sent an email saying, Hi, Derek, I don't have anything to say about Kong Skull Island, but I do want to comment on episode 309. Like Greg, it was the cabinet of Dr. Caligari that first turned me on to Conrad Veidt. And when I sought out other movies he was in, I discovered an actor who was not afraid to take chances or outlandish roles, and because of that, he won my heart. But first and foremost, I am a Batman fan. It was because of the Joker's link to it that I went out and found both the book and the movie. I can't imagine anyone besides Veidt playing Gwynplaine, but I have to say that I wish the movie had been more German expressionist. I actually really like pondering how the movie would have turned out if it had been in F.W. Murnau's hands. Wow, that, that's that's a what if. Wow. <laughs> that would look pretty cool, actually. That, that, especially the bit with the kid on the planes and the gallows behind him. Wow. That wow. Anyway, uh, she continues. Part of the reason she was pondering Murnau has to do with what Greg and I talked about when we lumped The Man Who Laughs in with The Phantom of the Opera and The Hunchback of Notre Dame. The monsters who are really just tragic figures. The idea that ugly people aren't inherently bad is a pretty new one, frankly, but that is exactly what Hugo exploits in his novel. Gwynplaine is ugly and people stare at him and laugh at him and think he's less, but Gwynplaine was made ugly by pretty noble people for their own ends. Even in his ugliness, he was caring and sweet, whereas the people who were his quote-unquote betters were nasty and manipulative this is a social justice novel and after seeing his film the last laugh i can't help but think Bernal would have squeezed all the significance out of the man who laughs that could possibly be there while i do love this movie and caligari the hands of orlock is the peak vite performance for my money and yes everyone should see waxworks thanks for listening to me ramble and keep up the good work Dominique, thank you for writing in. I need to know more about Conrad Veidt. I need to get a hold of Greg and see if he can maybe point me in the direction of maybe a biography or two, if there's anything like that out there that I can read about the man. And of course, I need to see more of his movies. It does seem like some of the bigger movies, the movies that he's well known for, at least in genre circles, uh, do appear to be available either online or on DVD pretty cheaply because of silent films, public domain. Although I do worry that some of the things that I personally am going to want to try to see are going to be unavailable. Just because they're lost films, which is the downside to a lot of these silent movies. So if you have a chance to see a silent film, don't pass it up because you don't know what's going to happen to it in the future. It might go away and you don't want to see that happen. I want to see the movies. I want to see Waxworks pretty pretty badly. And I don't know if I've seen The Hands of Orlock either. So put that on the list. And since Dominique brought up Batman and comic books. Why don't I go back to that email I was reading from Chris Franklin because he mentions comics as well. He says, if I can make one more DC Comics connection to this episode of Monster Kid Radio, I've been meaning to bring this up, but the first voiceover you hear in the Creature from a Black Lagoon trailer you run belongs to actor Michael Rye, who is best known to me as the voice of both Green Lantern and Apache Chief on all incarnations of the Super Friends. Rye did many voiceover jobs, but that's who I always think of when I hear that deep, deep voice. I've heard him in several trailers that you run on Monster Kid Radio, but of course, Creature is the best. Chris, you are so right. 
so much so i'm gonna play that trailer here in a moment but first i want to thank you for writing in i want to thank dominique for writing in our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com if you have any feedback or thoughts about anything that you've heard on this episode of monster kid radio or any of the previous 300 plus please feel want to write it in and i'll throw you in the mix and i promise next time around i'll try to heal up between now and then so that when i read your email it won't sound like i've got something coated in sandpaper buried in the base of my throat all right we've got a lot to get to on this episode first I'm going to kick off the Kong Skull Island coverage with the recording that I made with our friend Tom Doffel right after he and I saw the film. We were hanging out outside. You're going to hear a little bit of wind, but it was about a five-minute conversation, and I wanted to get that in there before we dive into the in-depth conversation that Paul and I have about the film. All right, so to quote Samuel L. Jackson in this movie and, well, another one, hold on to your butts, because here we go right after this. Sheer stark terror grips you in underwater 3D in Creature from the Black Lagoon. The most terrifying monster of the ages rises from the sea, raging with pent-up passions. Making every man his mortal enemy, every woman's beauty his prey. Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D, starring Richard Carlson and Julie Adams. Every horrifying scene leaps out of the screen right at you. A universal re-release rated G. movie you're waiting to see as John Ford and Miriam C. Cooper present Mighty Joe Young, whose sensational exploits will startle you, thrill you, electrify you with hair-raising excitement and suspense. See Mighty Joe Young as he savagely resists capture in his native Africa. See the most fantastic relationship between beast and beauty, a mere girl mastering a primitive giant. See mighty Joe Young, enraged by Hollywood pranksters, destroy Filmland's swankiest nightclub on the fabulous Sunset Strip. Mighty Joe Young, the picture that's alive with the most sensational action thrills ever filmed. Mightier than King Kong, mighty Joe Young. Brace yourselves for the month of March. Count Rahun's feature of Fright presents the Mimiverse Month and a half. Yes, I, I, I know. But don't judge me. I'm not in charge of marketing. For the month of March, I, Count Rahun, shall sit down with world-renowned filmmaker Christopher R. Mim the writer-director of such cult classics as The Giant Spider, Danny Johnson Saves the World, and Where Skeeto Nazi Hunter for a two-part interview for my Interviewed by a Vampire segment. In addition to this two-part interview, our first episode of April will star Christopher R. Mim as Dr. Rick Adelaide 
in an audio play entitled Journey to the Center of Ollie's Bladder. Log on to camcordertv.com come mid-March. Go to our podcast tab and click on Count Rahun's feature of fright to listen to part one of my interview with Christopher R. Mim. Or listen to it on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. I am Count Rahun, and I shall be expecting you. And remember that as far as things go when things go bump in the night, there are such things. I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited, and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited Monster Kids can get sometimes. If Monster Kid Radio spoils a movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines. Alright, so we just got out of Kong, Skull Island, saw the afternoon show at uh, Cinetopia. It's a theater of choice when I want to meet with my friend Tom Doffel, who hasn't been on the show in forever. Tom, how you doing, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing all right, man. Tom is the man who is responsible for uh, the monster box. He's my personal Dr. Frankenstein, so big thanks to that. I know I've talked about it on the show before, but you're the man, man. Oh, I can't take all the credit. I would all to you. <laughs> okay, okay. So we saw Kong Skull Island. Uh, initial thoughts? Uh, I liked it. It wasn't... It's very hard to describe. Are we spoiling this? Yeah, they're spoilers. Okay. Uh, thematically, it was all over the place. Yeah. It was trying to be a comedy. It was trying to be Apocalypse Now. I don't... It was all over the place. I couldn't follow. It did seem to try to hit a whole bunch of different notes all at once i think you're absolutely right um are you a fan of kong have you seen the other kongs i have only seen the what was the 30s there yeah, was one 33 33 that's the only kong i've seen oh really yeah no i saw the jack black one okay yeah okay. so you skipped the uh, 1976 yes okay so compared to the two that you've seen what do you think where, where would you rank this well obviously with all of the the visual effects uh, that they can do nowadays. It looked spectacular. Didn't really care for the story so much as uh, the other. I actually really liked the one with Jack Black, the first two-thirds of it. Uh, once they got off the island, it kind of went downhill. But uh, I thought it was really good. It does look visually impressive, and they, they don't spend a lot of time waiting for Kong to show up, which I worried was going to be a mistake because of all the, the trailers, which I know you don't usually watch. Um, but in the trailers, they didn't hide Kong, and I was worried they were going to kind of ruin the surprise. But I, I think it held up, and I thought he looked amazing, uh, much better than the 2005 Kong. Yeah, one thing I always worry about in movies like this is they do a reveal too early, and uh, so I always like for them to hold back, you know, showing, in this case, Kong until you know maybe the third act and kind of just build up to that point so when they showed him right off the bat uh i thought it worked really well especially the way that they did it i agree i agree and uh let's see thematically yeah you're right it's all over the place 
Uh, what do you think about setting it in the seven? It was seventies, right? Sixties, seventies. Yeah, it was seventy-three is when it was primarily done. So I'm trying to figure out where it fits in with the last Godzilla movie because last Godzilla movie was modern times, modern day, and so does that make uh, uh, Riley's what's his name? The lead, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the lead guy, Riley. Uh, is his son going to be in the next Godzilla? I guess. I guess how, how they're going to connect them. I'm wondering how they're going to tie these together. Huh. I hadn't really thought about that. But yes, it's... it's hmm. I don't know. Uh, did you catch the Jurassic Park reference? The entire movie reminded me of Jurassic well. Park, uh, <laughs> to be honest with you, when they were on the island and slogging through the, the forest. Samuel L. Jackson telling him to hold on to their butts is what I was referring to. So there's that. And I, I actually, I don't know if I'm reaching, but have you seen any of the, uh, the Toho, King Kong, or King Kong versus Godzilla, or King Kong Escapes? Uh, I have not. So in King Kong versus Godzilla, the original, um, they fight, and at one point, Kong picks up a tree and tries to shove it down Godzilla's throat. It's actually turned into a funny little meme gif online where he's trying to make him eat his broccoli, his, his vegetables. Uh, and, and I thought the, the throwing of the tree in the air might have been a reference to that. I don't know if I'm reaching. I also thought that the octopus thing he was fighting, which is also something that happens in King Kong versus Godzilla, he fights like an octopus. And uh, I, I thought this might have been a reference to that as well, considering Toho kind of sort of involved. I, I don't know. If, again, I'm, I might be reaching, but it's my thoughts anyway. Um, did you like this one better than the Godzilla, the 2014 Godzilla? I actually thought the 2014 Godzilla was really good. Yeah? Uh, I liked it a lot. I'm probably, I don't know if I'm in the minority because I don't know how well it was received, but I liked that one a lot. Uh, I think I like that one better than this. Barely. I think yeah. they're neck and neck. I have to go back and rewatch it. I haven't watched it since I saw it theatrically. Um, I, I probably should have so I could catch all the, the similarities in the opening credit sequence with Monarch and all that. They didn't hide that either. That was something they revealed right away. But, I mean, those of us who follow know that it's going to be part of the MonsterVerse. <laughs> you think the MonsterVerse is uh, looking good or, or you know, the trajectory? We only have two films, but what do you think? I think the MonsterVerse is looking a lot better than the classic MonsterVerse. That's for sure. <laughs> keep, keep showing trailers for The Mummy, and that, that doesn't look good at all. 20 minutes of trailers and The Mummy trailer. Um, first time I saw it on the big screen, so I don't know. We'll see. The bit at the end, the post credit sequence, thoughts on that? Uh, I didn't think it was great. I thought it was going to be more. Um, I was trying to decipher the uh, the paintings that they were showing to figure out which characters they were referring to. Mothra uh, was really the only one that I picked up. Um, the other ones were kind of I didn't I didn't digest them quick enough before they went off screen. It seemed kind of tacked on. I was kind of expecting something a little bit more, maybe set in the modern day, uh, maybe with these characters, the surviving characters a little bit older, coming back in to tell what they know about Kong or something like that. Um, but yeah, we do have a painting of Rodan, Mothra, and King Ghidra, and then of course Godzilla, which we saw in the very, very end credits, uh, a little comment that they're owned by Toho, so we kind of knew what we were going to see. And then it ended with the Godzilla scream or the roar, which it's a little different than what you get in Toho, but I still love it. So are you going to see the next one, which was what, Godzilla King of the Monsters? Of course I'll see that one. <laughs> yeah, of course I'll be here. Right on. Not, not a question? No, I'll be there. Listeners, this past weekend, I had the opportunity to see Kong Skull Island, and I know a lot of you did too, and I know this week's guest 
also saw it, and well, we can't talk about King Kong without having my man Paul McCongmas on the show. Paul, <laughs> <laughs> welcome back. Oh, it continues to be a great pleasure, Derek. Uh, <laughs> I guess I don't know how many people out there would self-define as Kong scholars, but I do. Uh, I think it's a, an important mythos as well as a, a captivating one. And uh, I really appreciate your including me in this discussion of the latest iteration from the, how can you say, canon with Kong in it. The kong on? No, it just doesn't work. Let's stop that now. Let's just season this. Oh, okay, sounds good. Sounds good. <laughs> You're right, though. It is a mythos. It's yep. an American mythos. It's That's one right. of ours. It's our mythos. It's part of our pop culture history, our cultural history. And the the history, the, the cultural mythos, it continues with Kong Skull Island. It opened this past weekend. And while we're going to get into it, just overall, thumbs up, thumbs down from you, Paul. Uh, slightly up. Slightly up. Yeah, if I were to grade it on the curve of, let's say, the big three, 33, 76, and 05, I'd have to say it's the weakest of the four. Really? Okay. Yeah, but if you have a love for the character the mythos and an interest in seeing how it manifests with different kind of themes and um, focuses, then it, it is a must-see. I will tell you this, I didn't, um, I didn't particularly want to see it again. Not to say that I wouldn't ever, um, but uh, a good movie, especially a good Kong movie, I would, I would go and see a day or two or three later. I probably should have in order to do this interview, but I, honestly, I was... Um, just too busy between Friday night or Thursday night, rather when it opened and I saw it um, and Sunday morning when we're doing the interview. The other thing is I just don't want to see skull crawlers again for a while. I, and not because they freak me out, kind of interesting creature design. Although there's no like personality that I could really identify there other than relentless uh, and nasty, but there's way too much screen time to, to my mind given to these, fight scenes uh, you know at least the fight scenes in 33 Kong at least those fight scenes they just seem more dramatic Kong's character comes through more it's more in his case they're about I think defending Andero as opposed to let's have another fight right now I wish that most of the screen time in Kong Skull Island that was given over to uh, fighting the, the skull crawlers had been given to developing some of those uh, Kong slash human relationships and I mean, the 80 ton gorilla in the room here is that <laughs> there is no real <laughs> attempt behind a glancing nod or three to develop a Kong slash girl relationship. You know, when they had that initial moment where she's standing there alone facing him and he has saved the giant muskox. And by the way, I really did like the giant muskox a lot. I uh, haven't seen that before. So there's number one, and number two is when she's standing with uh, Hiddleston's character, so Brie Larson and Hiddleston standing up there. Uh, and instead of having to jump down into the ravine, they're standing there, and she reaches out and touches Khan's nose. And at that point, I knew, okay, one, two, first act, second act, third act is going to have her finally being picked up. And she is. You know, she's scooped out of the water. It's sort of similar to what happens to Lang at one point in 76. But it's just in order not to blow her dry, but to uh, save her life and put her down. But there's there's obviously nothing, you know, passionate or romantic about his feelings toward her. And you know, it's like when they did uh, Planet of the Apes um, uh, movie, the Tim Burton one, where, 
you know, the great irony is that the apes are intelligent and talking and in control, and the humans, well, they're intelligent and talking too. They're just not in control. And it's like, well, why didn't you just go to what makes this franchise this franchise and make those humans mute animals? So if you're going to do a Kong film, why isn't there, you know, this passionate romantic drive on Kong's part for, well, in this case, one of two female cast members usually is just the one. Anyways, I'm sorry if I went on too long. No, I... And I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> That's why I wanted to have you on the show because you know, you know, I, you and I both have a deep appreciation for Kong. And after talking with you, I, I'm almost 100 percent on board with you when it comes to the 76 Kong. And I still like the 33 better, but you know, I mean, it's, yeah. it is what it is. But when you get away from the spectacle of Kong Skull Island, and it was a spectacle. I mean, it was a two-hour, mm-hmm. nonstop, pretty much thrill ride, and and I appreciated that a lot. But you know what, Derek? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Just quickly. Yeah. The best thrill rides have some stops in them, or if not stops, them some some valleys as well as the peaks. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. This is a strange comparison, but Bars Luhrmann, who you know makes non-genre films like Moulin Rouge, it's just like bang, bang, bang in your ear the whole time. And both the cinematography and the art direction and the way it's shot with a constantly moving camera and the loud, loud soundtrack is usually contemporary music, even if it's uh, Gatsby, which is set in the jazz age. The jazz age from which uh, both Kong and another uh, American cultural phenomenon, jazz, emerged. That's kind of interesting that they basically developed around the same time, 20s and early 30s. Hmm. But anyways, Roman's films are, are, are those slow rides that you talk about nonstop. And dynamics are, are key, whether you're talking about a, a Nirvana song that has raging choruses and subdued verses, or whether you're talking about a movie like, sorry, Kong 76, that has these lovely, gentle, elegiac kind of passages between Kong and, and, and a really wonderful Jessica Lang, And then you get the great log scene, which, by the way, I missed. I mean, this is not a remake of Kong. It's a reimagining. And not the best imaginations at work. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, part two. Oh, no, no, no. It's all good. Because I, I was going to say, I agree with you. You were when, saying, yeah. you were saying it was a great adventure film, a great nonstop thrill ride. That's yeah. what you were saying. Yeah, Just I mean, it, it is pretty much yeah, nonstop. It's bang, bang, bang. And my, my ultimate disappointment with the film does have to do with the human characters. And I don't know if this was intentional when it came to what the filmmakers were trying to do, uh, because there was a, a backlash against the 2014 Godzilla, meaning uh, the, with not enough monster action as far as the audience was concerned overall. So they put so much monster action in this that we didn't get character arcs. I, I felt like some of the most interesting character things that were happening in the film happened when we weren't with the humans. I would have loved to have spent more time with John Cena Riley's character and, and the Japanese pilot and what happened with their history on the island before right. the others showed up. I would have loved to have known that story. That, that seems fascinating to me. Well, well, that could have been interesting, but um, I mean, we can sit here and what if until the, oh, sure. until the giant musk oxen come home. <laughs> but let's, not, let's talk about what's actually on the screen. Did you like the giant musk oxen? Oh, I thought that scene was great. I, I really, yeah. I thought it looked good. I thought it sounded great. Yep, the snorts were great. Oh, I, I thought the sound design in the entire film was great. I, I thought yep. whoever was yep. involved in the sound, and, and the more I podcast, the longer I've been podcasting, the more I appreciate sound design and sound editing and mixing in film. And I thought yeah. the sound design was, was just fantastic in this. Sound overall is, is an underrated element. Yep. Honestly, I've noticed um, both in what I've watched and what I've been part of making. It is the easiest way to tell between something that's uh, not professional and something 
that is. Is the dialogue easy to understand? Is it mixed well with um, any music and sound effects? Are those sound effects plausible? Um, it's like editing. You want them to be really good, but not distract you from the rest of the story. So it's been said the best editing you don't even notice, at least not on a conscious level. And, and I'd say the same about, about sound design and sound generally, except I would add this. These are things you don't necessarily notice on a first viewing, because to me, at least, despite the scholarship and such, my first viewing is still basically an emotional experience. I still notice some things. Obviously, we all do. But it's an emotional and often, you know, for me, character-based experience. And then the second time, if I enjoy it enough, I'll go back and see it a second time or maybe more. And that one, the, we could say, higher level stuff starts to emerge and, and reveal itself. you find that, Derek? I, I totally agree. I mean, I'm a film score collector, so I feel the same way about film music. It's, yeah. it's these yeah. things that they're in the background. You can recognize them as, as being there, but they don't take away. They, they enhance. And when you go back and watch them a second or third, fourth time, and you really start to study these movies, you start to pick up on these things. And that's when their, their artistry becomes so evident. And I thought the sound design in this was great. I would love to go back and, and just listen to this film and, and hear right. the sounds of the monsters, the skull crawlers, you know, whatever, the King Kong stuff. The Kong sound was great. The muskox. It was, I'm going to say it was beautiful. I dare say it's beautiful. The way yeah, they, that, that, that monster design was great. Well, not even monster, but that creature design was great. And yep. it was very well done. I, I do think the human characters did not have the character arcs that we probably needed to identify or connect to the characters on a level deeper than, oh, they're humans in trouble. We really didn't get a lot. Yeah. I would have liked to have seen more. But it's a two-hour movie, and we've got so much Kong action in there. I think the only way you can do that is either cut back on the Kong action, which I don't think they were willing to do, or make the film longer. And I can't help but wonder if maybe there was more either in the script or maybe even shot with the yeah. human characters. The problem that you articulate there is an important one, but I think there's a have your cake and eat it too solution, which is you don't cut down on the amount of Kong action, but you change a lot of it from Kong versus Skullcrawlers action to Kong with people action. Yeah. So you still have as much Kong action, but this time it is character-based and driven. Let's talk about this character. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. I agree with you. It was one thing that was definitely missing in this film, as opposed to all the previous three iterations of Kong. You don't have the the Kong person or Kong, uh, either Dwan or Anne, or, or in this right. case, Mason connection, right. which right. it was really missing. I wanted more. The, the moment when she reaches out and touches his nose, I was like, that that's yep. what I want to see. That's what's been missing the entire time. I want that connection. Right. And we could wish that at that point he picks her up gently and they have a moment there. Like she trusts him enough to let him pick her up and Hiddleston looks on really concerned, you know, and that would be a really lovely scene. Personally, if he did that, I'd want them to, you know, turn tail, so to speak. No tails on gorillas. <laughs> and uh, just walk off into the jungle and borrow her for a while, you know. Um, and then her trust is, uh, it just, it becomes more psychologically complex at that point. This is not a, <laughs> here's an understatement. This is not a psychologically complex movie. No, uh, no, no. <laughs> there is some, there's some, <laughs> some stuff going on uh, beneath the surface, which actually is one of the main reasons that I found it interesting. And I want to get to that in a second. But you mentioned the characters, so let's just sort of look at them. James Conrad, and his last name, anticipates where I'm going to go in a second. Tom Hilton's a very likable actor, and I thought he acquitted himself fine to the extent that he was allowed to by the script. 
Same with Brie Larson, wonderful Oscar-winning actress. If you haven't seen The Room, see it. It's a tour de force for her and the uh, young actor who plays her son. That's kind of interesting. Uh, I mean, it's 73, so it's it's uh, right at the beginning of um, the mid-70s uh, kind of feminist movement, or maybe in the middle of it. And she is, I think, presented basically as a contemporary woman to, to, to our time. There's very little conflict based upon her gender. There's a little bit at the beginning, which Samuel L. Jackson's uh, Colonel Packard, who uh, may be the most interesting character because of the arc there. Uh, he is a hero um, in a couple of ways. And then by the end, he's become our, our villain, a very different villain from um, Charles Grodin's in 76. John C. Riley, you know, you mentioned, and John Goodman, two of our great character actors. And they're both effective. I always like watching both of them. And you know, Riley might have been a little over the top for my for my taste, but I did enjoy that arc that you mentioned, spoiler alert, um, where we actually see his younger self um, in the in the prologue. Um, and then he shows up uh, midway through the film um, as John C. Riley in, in late middle age. And, and John Goodman, I thought, was quite good. So, you know, why it's sad because this is an amazing cast. Yeah, and there's a second woman, uh, San, played by Tian Jing, and in some ways I would have thought it was really interesting if she had been the focus of Kong's attention, which would complicate somewhat the uh, troubled racial history of the Kong mythos, but it would move it into another direction, and it would maybe overlap interestingly with what I think is the the main interesting thing about this movie, and it's not related to, to gender studies this time, it is sociopolitical, and I bet you can guess it, Derek. Oh, yeah. Huh. What is this whole thing a metaphor for? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and they knew it going into it, and, and I think we're on the same page here. Even the movie poster for the IMAX edition of the film is so straight-up apocalypse now. So, of yeah, course, there, there's flavors of this throughout the whole film, and not just because it's set at the end of the Vietnam War. There, There is so much here. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> So close to the end of the war, that it's essentially the final battle. And because with these people, like Packard and, and some of his men, they're going straight from uh, in-country uh, to, to Skull Island. Now, I have mixed feelings about this. It does make it a more interesting film, and especially for someone like me who, you know, I was a kid, but I lived through it, and I remember the war. I knew some people who were drafted, um, obviously older than I was. But it's also kind of insulting. Because, uh, you know, it's not a good enough film, to my mind, or a serious enough film beyond that focus, to merit the, the weight that comes with something as traumatic to our country, and that took the toll it did on our country and its young men, as did the Vietnam War. But I'll just run through a list here, because this is what I was doing before you called. I was drawing upon what memories I could, uh, having seen it once. Well, first of all, <laughs> there's a line at the beginning. This is a part from them that I wonder if it was added at the last minute after Trump's election. Goodman says near the beginning, there will never be a more screwed up time in Washington. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, that was not written as a response to um, the Obama administration where things ran pretty smoothly. That line only works as irony, which is, I, I think, how it you know, that's how it seems to be framed. Mm -hmm. Only works as irony if things are really, really screwed up in Washington. So, I, I mean, I don't know whether that was was shot since uh, uh, November twentieth, but uh, or November ninth, but eighth. I, 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 I get. I would guess that it was. If it wasn't, 
boy, that line works a lot better now than it did um, <laughs> when it was when the scene was shot. And, and can I ask you real quick before we move on? Did that get a chuckle in the theater? Because it, it certainly did. Where we were when I saw yeah. it, yeah, yeah, it did. Okay, it did. I was disappointed that there were, were more people there. Um, often for these big blockbusters, mm-hmm. there's a sellout or near a sellout. There was for Suicide Squad, but there wasn't for this. Okay, so yeah, the time period that she mentioned and that's key. It's '73. It's during the withdrawal from them, and some of these folks are withdrawn and and stuck over there instead. And you hear Packard say, thank you for the assignment because he's defined by his soldiering. Um, this is where Skull Island. It's in the Asia slash Pacific uh, uh, theater, if you will. It's not Southeast Asia, but close enough. Uh, we have the Nixon bobblehead on the dashboard of the helicopter gunship, the one that Packard is, is uh, piloting. Um, you have the bombing of the jungles and those endless stretches of beautiful lush vegetation just being decimated by uh, by the incoming, sorry, white imperialist uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, 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 weaponry. The palm tree attack. I mean, the first thing that happens when they're bombing, and honestly, I thought it was just a weird result of the bombing that one of those trees shot up into the air somehow, and it turned out, of course, it was thrown by our our tool-using and, to some extent, tool-making gorilla. So what does he do? He, Kong, as in Viet Cong. Ah, I see. Okay, Uh, okay. (laughs) But it's a homophone. It's a Uh homophone. What does he use as his initial weapon to strike back at the invading uh, white American hordes? Well, not all white, but okay, American hordes. He's a palm tree, which is a symbol, really, of that kind of of so-called third world um, domain that that we attacked and seem to attack again and again with regularity because we never learned. The use of Creedence Clearwater revival songs throughout, and again, I'm old enough to know that they were very much associated with the war through songs like Run Through the Jungle and uh, especially uh, It Ain't Me, It Ain't Me. It was that favorite song. I think it's called Favorite Son. Someone will correct me if it's mm-hmm. not. It's about basically getting drafted and thrown into that damn war. Sure. The whole thing is a quagmire. I mean, the word quagmire is never said, but it, it just it came to mind several times because, you know, here we are way in way over our heads. Um, the locals seem to be, um, you know, like Asian extraction. This is one war we're not going to lose, says Packard at one point. Someone says this place is hell. You've got guerrilla warfare. <laughs> <laughs> wow, how long have you been working on that? <laughs> well, no, I mean, I had this developed while I was watching it, and I wish I... No, I don't wish I'd taken notes. Okay, that's okay. For <laughs> that's for a second, second viewing. But, okay, so there is no return um, either from Skull Island. So, in a way, uh, that becomes a metaphor for many of the men who stayed there in their heads. There was a hit song in the... Let's say early 80s, maybe called Still in Saigon or late 70s. Still in Saigon. And well, I, I think to some extent you can't get out of Skull Island, and presumably they do, but it's not dramatized, it's not depicted. So there's no New York City arrival, no East Coast return, and so we don't get to see whether there's a parade for them, as there wasn't for non veterans or not. And isn't there a line, too, about parades? I think John C. Riley's character says something, you know, I miss the parade, something like that. Right. So the NOM stuff, it sort of works, and it's sort of offensive to me. The Apocalypse Now comparisons, um, you know, that's overblown. Uh, I just, I mean, not you. I'm saying that the choice to go there on their part is kind of silly. Yeah. Because it's a very serious film. 
I was really surprised to see that poster design just when they were marketing the film. I was really shocked. I mean, it's an iconic movie poster. It's a great image. It's a moving image. And I was just really surprised to see it used in such a way. It it seemed just off to me. It's a reach. Yeah. Oh, and one other thing, it's just the blaring of of loud music from the gunships. And maybe that happened more often than I'm aware of in real Nam. But it certainly is a prominent thing in, in Apocalypse Now to gin up the mood, and I know it also has happened in wars since. So anyways, there's some of the non stuff. I'm sure there's more. This is what came to mind while I was watching and putting two and two together. I think it's easier for someone who lived through that period uh, to notice some of this stuff. And also, those of us who have seen a fair amount of the, the cinematic or read a lot of the literary uh, fiction and nonfiction coverage. Well, Jan Hiddleston's character is named Conrad, and that's right out of Heart of Darkness which becomes Apocalypse Now. I, I have to, I don't wonder. It was intentional. The name, the naming was intentional there. It had to have been. Yeah, I don't usually t- focus on intentions because I think the movie is the movie, but this, this stuff is so obviously intentional mm-hmm. that, that even I will say, yeah, yeah, it's intentional. And then the question becomes, does it work? Intentional or not, if we notice that it's there, this is clearly intentional, mm-hmm. sidebar. Mm-hmm. Does it work? And that, I think, is what we've been discussing and saying, kind of. It makes it a more interesting movie because, for me, it adds a a sociopolitical uh, layer to it. The usual uh, tricky, troubling racial elements are less there, at least as regards um, people from or, or descended from Africa. We don't have that business of the large, dark, so-called third world male who has, you know, the particular fancy for blondes uh, and is then brought in a slave ship uh, to the New World, so-called New World. Uh, that, that stuff's not there at all. But to the extent that there is some kind of um, interesting racial stuff going on in here, it's because the film is about Vietnam and uh, Kong represents, well, hapless victims. I mean, we all know that the Viet Cong with a, with a C um, who Kong here does not represent, uh, were very, uh, a very murderous um, subset of the Vietnamese people. And that's not what Kong represents. He represents really, I think, some of the people who uh, saw their country destroyed by us and our allies and uh, hadn't done anything to deserve it. Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite scenes is the initial Kong appearance, ape appearance, um, and <laughs> how how justified he is in, you know, tearing out of that jungle like they intend him to do, except, except they never reckoned uh, that this thing would be so big. And that to me is problematic because it immediately reduces um, the chance and, and quality of a Kong slash girl relationship. The, the bigger he gets and the bigger back gap between him and her, then the less chance there is of something meaningful and, and evocative. There, but here's the thing about that first scene, and I love. That. Okay, so he has an appearance in the prologue, and that's effective too. I went with a friend, and she jumped out of her seat about 14 times during this movie, and that is to the credit of the <laughs> filmmakers, I guess. He said it's a it's a thrill ride. Yeah, in that sense, it certainly is. There are there are some good uh, you know screen points in it. But let me ask you this about that first for real Kong appearance, sure. where we see him in Toto. Did you find yourself wondering why when this 100-foot ape jumped out of the jungle and threw a palm tree through someone's gunship, did you find yourself wondering why all the other gunships didn't immediately turn around and regroup? (laughs) 
it did seem to, uh, I mean, I, I get, you know, the chaos of war and, and, and getting lost in the moment being, but there should have been, I felt like for a group, especially a group led by somebody like Packard's character, they, they seem yeah. to break down in terms of their, I, I don't know if this is the best way to put it, military efficiency. Um, they, they just, yeah, they, they just kind of all lose it. And I get yeah. it. There's, there's a huge gorilla throwing things at you and you don't expect that. And, and I get that, but they're professionals, at least Packard is. And, and I would feel like, yeah, they, they should have either regrouped, retreated, full on attacked as a group, uh, something. They can't full on attack. This is a complete surprise. Maybe not to, uh, to Goodman. Okay. Yeah. Soldiers aren't supposed to, and generally I think don't get, you know, frozen up by the uh, by the unexpected. Vietnam was all about the unexpected. You see that ape. It's taking out one of your gunships. You turn around, you say, uh, you know, pull back. Um, reconnaissance at some point really far away. Okay. I, I, I mean, I did. this is something I thought of repeatedly during that scene, because that scene went on for so long. It's like, would you stop flying toward it? Would you stop buzzing it from, from the other direction? Would you stop trying to converge on it? Because clearly... You're overmatched. Look what just happened to your comrades in that gunship. We need a better plan. We need a better plan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we need a bigger boat. No, we need a better colonel. <laughs> and uh, what if instead, again, what if, sorry, they all do turn tail and Kong pursues. And he starts snatching them out of the air. And, and one of them goes up fairly high, but he jumps up and grabs it. You still have your dramatic, uh, you know, uh, first ape appearance, full, first full-on ape appearance, but you also have something that's more plausible, and that doesn't take me out of the movie. There's too much taking me out of the movie, and the movie that I was being taken out of wasn't particularly good. I still give the thing three stars because I love Kong, and because uh, as an adventure story, it worked um, it worked fairly well, and uh, you know, and the the Nam layer was something I enjoyed. I guess mostly just for the sake of spotting it in there. But it also felt like a reach in terms of, okay, you're taking a not very good movie and you're trying to make it a little bit more sophisticated and serious by layering this in there. And, uh, you know, not to say that there was, see, I just broke my own intentional fallacy rule. Let's just say that, again, intentional or not. Yeah, never mind. It was intentional. Yeah, it was intentional. We could talk about this one in that case because there's just so much going on. And then it does bring us around to saying, all right, if this is what they meant to do, and they clearly did. And does it work? Uh, sort of. That the beginning bit where they do come in and the first full on attack, I just kept thinking to myself in the back of my mind, were there that many people going in in the first place? Where did all the helicopters come from? I don't think they went in with that many folks, you know? I didn't remember but, there being quite that many. Yes. Exactly. So they came and they came and they came. Yeah, they just kept coming. <laughs> there was like a little military generator off 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 the off camera. Just they just kept coming out and coming out and coming out. Um, well, now wait a minute. But here's a possible metaphor. Again, yeah, yeah, intended okay. Or not, intended or not, and I'm just going to try and, and and be kinder to the film right now and say that's what happened with Nam. We throw five thousand soldiers at this quagmire. Well, at this war. Yeah. And then as it increasingly becomes a quagmire, throw five thousand more. Throw ten thousand. Throw fifteen thousand. And it goes on and on and on, in that case, for years. And so maybe that first attack becomes a sort of metaphor for the whole war. Yeah. I, I want to go back to John C. Riley's character. I, 
I found him to be one of the more interesting characters in the whole thing. I, I do think every once in a while his his comedy got a little broad for me. I would have liked it to be toned down a little bit. Yeah. But I did like the idea of the character, and I would have liked to have known more, again, with his background on the island, what happened with the Japanese pilot. But I did appreciate that, I don't know, World War II versus Vietnam. There yeah. are a few moments that they kind of compared, and I did like that. Yeah. I think he's a character that I walked away wanting to know more about and enjoying the most time with. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he represents the heroism involved in the necess- the necessary war. And he even gets to go home at the almost end. Of course, you and I know that there's something after the credits, too. And uh, I did stay. I, no one had told me to, but I just had this, I don't know, I had this sense of there's going to be something else. I didn't know it was going to set up more um, in the franchise, but I had a sense that there'd be some kind of button on the movie. So, but back to Riley, Hank Marlowe. Yeah, it's an interesting addition. Um, he's always entertaining, and he was entertaining here. You'd like to see more of his relationship, his friendship with the Japanese counterpart. And it was, you know, it's sort of touching that there was a bond between these two guys who, when you see them uh, initially, they don't waste any time no. <laughs> uh, in going after each other. And that's kind of a nice thing, too, because normally if you're stranded on a desert island with one other person, you know, try and, I would think... You'd want to try and figure out as quickly as possible how to work together so that you can both live. But that's rational thought. And, you know, wartime is not really about rational thought. Uh, Vietnam was not about rational thought. The stakes were so high in World War II, and we were aching from Pearl Harbor. I can understand. And then to the, uh, on the other side, um, Imperial Japanese forces were, were taught that we were the devil, and vice versa. And so I, I'm not saying it's implausible. It's just kind of a sad reminder of of human nature. Assume the worst and go for the throat. Yep, yep. Gunpie was the character's name, and okay, yeah. And I mean, they even have the moment where he tells the others, you know, we, we promised each other we'd never leave each other yeah. leave each other behind. But then immediately, without missing a beat, he takes the sword and he takes off. And I felt like that was a little rushed. <laughs> like, and I don't know if that was just because his character had started to lose a little bit of a grip. He did seem to, to have lost a little bit of a sense of reality. But I just uh, I wanted more there. There's a little bit more meat to that sequence. But Yeah. Yeah. He is a little bit and understandably well, eccentric. I wouldn't call him disturbed exactly. But okay, so you talk about the humor in, inherent in that character. And I'll just make a more general comment about the humor in the movie. There were times when it just didn't work because it seemed to be coming from a different movie. You know, when they pause to talk about the naming of the skull crawlers and some of the other characters uh, are, are reacting to it, you know, it works for me. It seemed out of place. It it, it was humor from a different movie um, um, uh, with a different tone. I, yeah, I'm sorry to beat up on the script looking at the names of the people, Dan Gilroy, Max Borenstein, Derek Connolly, John Gattins, I would have to research to see what else they worked on. So many Hollywood movies are worked on by these cabals. And frankly, too often they're all male. And I think you do get different perspectives. Obviously you get different perspectives if you include the other 51% um, of the human population. (laughs) You think? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and particularly with the mythos that as we've you know highlighted is is about until now is about a relationship between a male and a female across the species line granted 
Um, I want a female perspective. I won't say the female perspective because there's no such thing. I want a female perspective somewhere in the crafting of the yes. script. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you love to see a Kong that's directed by a woman? Well, Wouldn't that be interesting? It'd be amazing. I think that would be fantastic like, and just fascinating. Yeah, from girl's point of view. And I call her girl because, first of all, um, she's no longer the blonde. Right. Thanks to Brie Larson. Mm-hmm. Um, and also because, you know, it's a diminutive term as opposed to saying the woman. But this is how the franchise uh, tends to treat the character Kong and the girl. And, you know, in the first movie, she's referred to by Denim and the others as the girl. I can't remember if they do that in 76. Be interesting to... Yeah, in Son of Kong, she's kid. Hey, kid. Yeah. Kid. Hey, kid. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a, sort of a juvenileization. But uh, Kong doesn't think of her as a girl. He thinks of her as a woman. That's pretty clear. Sure. You know, I'm looking at the credits of the other... Uh, of the people involved in writing here. And, you know, I know people got to start from somewhere. And, and, you know, when you're a writer in Hollywood, you, you do what you got to do. But when one of the writers was involved in the movie Monster Trucks, <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, just not, not that I've seen the film, but I've seen enough of the trailer to know that's not my cup of tea. Um, <laughs> and I'm looking now at, uh, at the director. You're right. The, the director, Jordan Vote Roberts. So what has he directed? Single dads and successful alcoholics. Oh, right. <sighs> I'm not saying it has to be someone within genre. You know, that can work. Sure. But it, it should be a really good director. And, and people behind the Kong need to be people like, uh, you know, Marion Cooper, uh, the wonderful directing and screenwriting team behind 76, both of whose names are eluding me because I'm 55. Um, <laughs> and obviously Peter, Peter Jackson is a director of, mm-hmm. uh, of some talent, not to bash that movie or Jackson excessively. But like Steven Spielberg, Peter Jackson doesn't know how to do sex, sensuality, mm-hmm. romance, mm-hmm. passion. They both seem to me like uh, overgrown 12-year-olds who haven't quite gotten interested in that. Maybe they are a little bit, but not enough to actually go there and look at it. There was a too much of a lot of things in the Peter Jackson version, and what there was not enough of, really any of, was romance slash passion slash sexuality. And I, to me, that's a betrayal of the mythos. Mm-hmm. You don't have it here either. You don't have it here either. No, not you really. Know, yeah. all the, this is the American thing, Derek. This is the American thing. Violence, violence, violence. Up the wazoo. Yeah. But where's the sex? Where's the sex? It, it, I would rather see some nudity, some sexuality. And those are two different things, by the way, even sure. though they're often linked. Um, I'd rather see some of that, maybe a little less of the violence. And maybe that's part of the reason. Uh, part of the reason. One of the many reasons why I, I, I consider 76 to be uh, the most engaging, the most compelling. I find the, the John Barry score from that movie running through my head when I'm thinking about Kong or going to see a new Kong movie or bemoaning the fact that it wasn't better. Suddenly, elements of that Barry score. Mm-hmm. Well, it's beautiful and it's romantic and it's, I mean, it's exciting when it needs to be you know, bombastic and adventurous, but it doesn't stay there that that does take you to that 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 place of passion and romance that you didn't get in i mean i like howard shore's music but i don't think you got that in uh the 2005 kong shore did that didn't he was that howard shore yeah Uh, because i know he was doing a lot of peter jackson at the time so it didn't have that same vibe I, i i thought the music in this film was passable was adequate 
Uh, you know, I'll add the soundtrack to my collection, but I don't think I'm going to go back to it as much as I go back to the 76 or even the Max Steiner from the original. Do you remember a single phrase from the score of this new one? Uh, you know, I, I don't really. I just know a lot of it felt like, I mean, I hate to say it, generic action music, you know? Well, yeah, and let's just look at the four. Steiner is a great, mm-hmm. great quirky, yeah. quirky adventure score. And there's some weird stuff in there. I'm thinking of the scene where they walk past the fallen, um, way too big Stegosaurus. You know, I'm, I'm remembering at least some quirky music there and throughout a lot of the marching through the jungle encountering dinosaurs stuff. And then it becomes tragically romantic. And, and then I adore the John Barry. I think it's the best. The Jackson one, you know, I just think it's overblown. Mm-hmm. Just like the whole movie. <laughs> yeah. Everything has way too much, way too much gravity to it. And then the new one, forgettable. Because yeah. I've forgotten it. So have you. It's forgettable. Yeah, I'd have to go back and listen to it again. And, and I, like I said, I'll add the soundtrack to my collection because I'm obsessed with film scores. But yeah, I don't know how often I'm going to listen yeah. to this one versus the 76 or the 33 score. Oh. Boycott it. Derek, boycott it. Don't buy it. <laughs> Take a stand. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, right. This film cost $190 million. Okay, so I was out in um, Hollywood a couple weeks ago and I signed a letter of intent on uh, what's going to be the first feature that I'm involved in based on my novel Unplugged. And we're going to make it for, I don't know, a 190 millionth. <laughs> no, not, we're not making it for a dollar. A 190th of it, um, or maybe a 380th of it, if we have 500K to spend on this film. It's going to be an indie feature. And, and, you know, this is obviously not an indie feature, but I can't help but thinking, if you were to divide it up between 190 promising filmmakers or 380 and give them 500K apiece, do you think we'd have some movies better than this one? I do think, I mean, I think that applies to a lot of Hollywood, actually. You throw so much money at a project and you just kind of get lost in it. I feel like the less money you have, the more creative you are forced to be. Exactly. And and you do lose something. And that's why a lot of my favorite movies are the lower budget affairs, because they had to be created by necessity and you get more out of it, at least for me. And I know a lot of people like the big budget Hollywood stuff, and that's fine. But for me... I do too, too, but if it works, if it works. Yeah. Right? I agree. You spent $190 million. It did damn well better work. Yeah. You know, Suicide Squad. The Suicide Squad is another movie that cost a fortune and that sort of works. I don't think it should be bashed to the extent that it is. That's just reductive. It's easy to say, oh, this thing's a disaster. It's not. Parts of it work very well. Um, but then parts of this con work pretty well. But there's not enough when you're spending that kind of money. My friend, that is, that's a fifth of a billion dollars. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, it's crazy. It's a lot of money. Uh, and, and, Give that to 380 filmmakers. Make sure I'm one of them. And, and, and I tell you, for my 500K, I am going to give you one hell of a movie. <laughs> Just, and, 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 yeah. so what you say is, is absolutely right. I'm thinking of movies, even those that aren't very good movies, a movie like The Killer Shrews, a movie like The Brain That Wouldn't Die. You go back to them again and again because they're so enjoyable, uh-huh. even if they're not brilliantly made and they usually have some sequences in them that recommend them. I'm doing this book, as you know, co-writing this book for an academic press about Edgar Omer and a movie like daughter of Dr. Jekyll is a great movie. No, is a good movie. I could make the case that it is. And it certainly has some standout scenes in it. And, you know, I'm trying to think of the standout scenes in Kong Skull Island. 
the nose touch, right? The nose touch. The nose touch or the scenes or, or the muskox or scenes that seem to uh, refer back to other scenes and other Kongs. I felt like, and I'm sure part of this was by design because it is part of the let's bring Godzilla and King Kong together in the MonsterVerse. Right. There were a couple yeah. of moments in this that made me think of Toho's King Kong films. And those are the moments I'm going to remember. You know, the, oct- the octopus bit. Right. The octopus. The octopus, yeah. right. The calamari scene. Actually, I think it's a giant squid this time. I saw its head. I think it's a giant squid. Okay, okay. It had that kind of... But yeah, still... But, but close enough. Yeah. And, yeah. Calamari mm-hmm. scene, yeah. It was it was totally a reference to that. And it's like, why particularly is a Kong film going to reference King Kong versus Godzilla? I enjoy that film too, but it's not oh, really no. a Kong film. <laughs> exactly. It's not a particularly good film. Um, but is it better than King Kong Escapes? I suppose so. In both cases, Kong is way too big. Remember when he picks up Girl in King Kong versus Godzilla or mm-hmm. in King Kong Escapes? And she's like, it's like picking up a cricket. It's yeah. like you were me picking up a cricket. Yeah. And in this case, it's not much better than that. It's like, I don't know, picking up a goldfish or something. And <laughs> and it, it, here's the irony. Here's the paradox. The bigger Kong gets, literally. The smaller Kong gets, uh, mythically. Because we're moving away from that key bonding and that, that key relationship. Now, I, I love King Kong Escapes for, for a number of different reasons, but but no, I just love that movie. It's one of my absolute favorites, but I, I hear exactly yeah. what you're saying. I mean, I can recognize the different level of filmmaking happening in that film versus other other Kong films or, or, or any other movie, really. Um, <laughs> the wonderful cheesy miniatures in King Kong Escapes. I love you know, it. I love it so much. Wonderful cheesy but do you ever, again, in your life really need to hear, Kong, put me down. <laughs> oh, God, that dubbing actress it is just awful. Or maybe it is the actual, I don't know what it is, who cares. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, it's a slightly annoying film. No. You saw it at a time when it imprinted on you in a certain way, and I don't know, I, I go back and look at it now, and, and uh, it's hard to get through it. But sure, it, 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 sure, it, sure. So... You know, speaking of Godzilla and Toho and the MonsterVerse, yeah. I mean, knowing yeah. that that's what this movie was about, I mean, it's we are ultimately going to have King Kong versus Godzilla if this movie does well enough, and by all indications, it probably will. Uh, we're going to have that here in a couple. I think it's going to be called Godzilla versus King Kong. I believe I read that somewhere. Oh, they swap. Oh, interesting. Okay. So that it's not the same title because okay. it's not going to be the same movie. Clearly. Okay. All right. Yeah. And you said yeah. you did stick around through the end credits, so you saw a yes, little bit. Right. And I, I had yep. known. I was told online there's something, but I intentionally tried to avoid anything uh, that would have told me what it was, what the spoiler was. Somebody, I think it was over on Sci-Fi Japan's website, they said, check out the end credits, here are the end credits, and look here, there's something that tells you what's happening in the end. I didn't read that. I was hoping what they meant was that some of the actors from maybe Godzilla 2014 were going to turn up. Um, but no, yeah. we just have a little bit that almost felt tacked on at the very, very end. Um, yeah. This is spoilery. I mean, this episode is going to have spoilers in it. In, sure. in terms of servicing this progressing monsterverse, what do you think? I think that it's a real mistake to uh, make a movie with an eye toward its sequel. Okay? You know, make this the best freaking movie you can. And then, if it is a great movie, it will demand a sequel. Now, that's not Hollywood thinking. That's artistic thinking, I guess. So, let's just go uh, to another um, ape universe, the the reboot of Planet of the Apes. Okay. My beloved, my beloved Planet of the Apes. The Rise of the Planet of the Apes was not made with 
sequels necessarily in mind. They just wanted to reboot that franchise uh, in a new way that still had lots of tips of the hat to the original uh, series and um, was, was in the spirit of it. It's an excellent film. I give Rise four and a half stars. And it was so good that it became quite successful, commercially, critically, um, just as it was successful artistically. And it demanded sequels. Now, I wasn't a huge fan of Dawn. And I look at the trailer for War for the Planet of the Apes, and it looks to me like more bashing around in the forest. And it's like, okay, so you've done a really interesting reimagining of Conquest here through Rise. And now you're taking the worst of the original five ape films, Battle 4, and, and stretching it out into four hours. I'm sorry. That's just, that, that's just misguided. But Rise rocked. Still does every time you watch it. And that's what they should have done here. Like, we're not trying to set anything up, but that's, not, again, that's not Hollywood thinking. They've got a franchise on their hands, and, and they're going to draw it out, and they're trying to get to Godzilla versus King Kong, and this is the intermediate step where you grow him to 100 feet on his way to growing to God knows how big to fight Godzilla, or maybe they'll bring Godzilla down a little bit inside. By the way, I, I really like Shin Godzilla. What oh, do you think I, I loved Shin Godzilla. I, I cannot yeah. wait for it to get an American home release because I'm going to snatch that right. up. I loved it. Yeah, me too. Me too. Me too. Yeah. Um, and there's a movie about politics. To its credit, um, the machinations um, inside uh, any government trying to cope with crisis. Um, so this is, you know, back to Skull Island. It is a, it's a, um, and I don't mean the friendly Godzilla. Uh, this is a, it's a political movie. And like Shin Godzilla, only less successfully so. And I appreciate that, that they're trying to, you know, that there is an element of that to it. But I'd appreciate it even more if I felt that it, A, was, was merited by a fine film, and B, really fully worked. It is interesting to, to see a character at first, I'm talking about Kong, at first seemingly villainous, or at least anti-hero, who becomes a hero, and to think of that as the symbol of uh, hapless victims of our imperialism uh, in the 60s and, and early 70s. That is interesting. And, and rather than then going back and undercutting that, I'm just going to leave that there and say, that overall, I'm glad that was in there. And I think that overall, it kind of worked. There's a lot of this movie that kind of worked. Yeah. You know, the person yeah. that I saw the film with... Um friend of mine, he commented that thematically the film seemed to be kind of all over the place, that it was a war movie. No, yeah. it's an adventure movie. No, it's this kind of movie, that kind of movie. And I do feel like that kind of, this film does suffer from that. It's filmmaking by committee though. You know, they, they were intending to make this the next step in the MonsterVerse. And I get it. Marvel's making a ton of money off of their linked universe. And I, and I get it. You want to emulate that as a studio. You want to make money, but I, I just feel like that when you start doing that, you do lose your immediate focus on the project at hand. I saw online somebody posted a video yesterday talking about how they can't wait for King Kong versus Godzilla or Godzilla versus King Kong because it took seven writers to make that story. It's so big. It needs seven writers to do it. Like I, that, that's, that's not a good <laughs> no. thing. That's not a positive. No. It's not. no. <laughs> 76. 76. I think the best screenplay because I think the best movie one writer. Yeah. I should look him up. I'm sorry. I just, I, my memory is terrible. And he's done a lot of fine screenplays. And the director is a really fine director, too. So I'm looking it up right now in real time. 
Oh, my Lord, Jessica Lange is so good and so beautiful. <laughs> and uh, Jeff Bridges is really fine as a mid-70s, very long-haired male hero. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't see that much anymore. Grodin is hilarious. Rene Auberjonois and, and the rest of the supporting cast. And frankly, let's just say Rick Baker is really fine. There were moments here where I thought this Kong, Skull Island Kong, was more like the Rick Baker Kong than any other Kong we've seen. I agree. He was standing up, standing mm-hmm. upright. Mm-hmm. He had some of the emotion, I thought, of the Rick Baker Kong, and that's, that's a high compliment. This is not, let's just say this straight out, this is not a sequel to Peter Jackson. No. Even though some of the same people are involved and, and the CGI is somewhat similar and so forth, the natives are different. Okay, so the director of 76 was John Gilliman. He's done a lot of great work. And this, I, I stand corrected. The writers, there are multiple writers. That's not how I remembered it. Probably because I was, I know that Gilliman's imprint is all over the script. Sure. But, well, a couple of the writers listed here were people that were involved in the original 33. So. Oh, you're right. So You're right. It's just James Creelman. It's just James Creelman and the other one. Okay, it's Lorenzo Semple Jr. Again, done lots of great work. And the other story credits here, I, sp- I stand uncorrected or corrected by you that I was incorrect. Um, <laughs> these are just uh, writers and idea conceived by people like Cooper and Wallace. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a simple yeah. screenplay directed by Gillerman. And those are just two great names of kind of mid to late uh, 20th century uh, uh, American Hollywood filmmaking. Two titans of the 70s. Yep. And it shows. Yep. Yeah. We're going to get the usual... Uh, Contrary in mail and voicemails because I I keep holding up seventy sixes. You know what? You know, I I mean I've made this pretty clear on my sh- you know in, since you've been on the show and to people who ask me, I really enjoy the seventy six film now. I really do. You've opened my eyes to a lot of interesting things about that movie. I still need to get around to ordering the Blu Ray from Japan because I I, I adore the mm-hmm. film. I think it looks amazing. I felt and it's, it's a great story and the performances are solid. The direction solid. I feel like there are a couple of moments in Skull Island that made me sure. think of 76, uh, the yeah, 76 film, the, sure. the scene on the boat where they're all having a little uh, conversation about what they're going to be doing next and, and the seismic mm-hmm. investigation that they want to do. Couldn't help but think about yeah. their yeah. quest for oil in 76. So, I mean, there are a few moments here and there. Also, <laughs> with this film, we now have the two people that are on the movie poster from The Big Lebowski having fought King Kong. One won, one didn't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, which I thought was kind no, of fun. That's the movie I want to see. I want to see from that character deal with Khan. They're not going to fight. They're yeah. just going to sit and talk and drink <laughs> and bowl and bowl. Um, but yeah, it, that's that's a great point. This is a political film. Yeah. So it was 76. Mm-hmm. 33 and 05 aren't, except if you want to make the argument that they have to do with um, the rape of nature. I don't think 32 really cared much about that, but, but I think Jackson, you know, his movie does seem to be talking about the despoiling of, uh, and, and taking out of context, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. elements of the amazing natural world around us, but not a political film. In a sense, the first three are all political because they address some of the, again, troublesome racial issues, uh, or if not address it, address them, but are in, those issues are inherent. And again, troublesome in the same way that Conquest of the Planet of the Apes is troublesome. Because at the same time, you have a metaphor of a gorilla for um, Africans and people of African descent, which is obviously on the face offensive. 
but also it's done with sympathy and you end up rooting for that character. That's complex. They've, they've avoided that this time, or maybe you would say that they've ducked it because it is part of the Hong Kong fang. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, that's political in the sense of being socio-racial, but, but in terms of the corporatism and uh, energy uh, industry critique of 76, and then here, the kind of over-the-top nom um, references and, and comparisons. Those are the two, number two and number four, if we're going to look at that that way. The big budget for their times, Kongs. And maybe we can look at that at sure. it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though really three of them are King Kong, and this fourth one is a kind of reimagining, it's, it is apt that it has a different title that is appropriate. But I think we can look at the four together and say that two and four are, are the most political. And that I would say one and two are the best in, in the other order. Two and one are the best for me. I think you're right with the 76 in this one being that is it going to be like the reverse Star Trek rule or something where every other one is going to be a particular <laughs> way? No, this one is definitely a political film. It's also interesting to me that this is the first time we've had a Kong film where we don't try to take Kong off the island. We just kind of leave him there. They're saving that for the next one. Oh, I'm Again, sure. it's set up. Yeah. This is part of what makes a Kong movie, just like having a girl. Part of it is that he is taken out of his world and stuck into ours, and they're saving that for Godzilla versus King Kong, where the two of them are going to be, yeah, they're going to be so huge, they're going to be like ripping off skyscrapers from, from, from the ground and tossing them at each other. And uh, then suddenly you, you're in Toho land, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not what I look for. But, yeah, I... Should we say some nice things? I, I feel like we've beaten up on this new film so much that people aren't going to want to see it. Let's see, I was going to go there, too. And while we have spoiled a lot of it, I, I think there are some things to enjoy the, about the movie, too. I mean, I really enjoyed, like I said, the yeah. sound design. On a technical level, I think technically the film works. I think production-wise, it, it sounded amazing. And I think when it comes to the CG, we're using the most cutting-edge CG here to make it look really good and i and i thought that yeah. worked what are some of the things about the movie that you liked yeah it is good cg and i tend to to um prefer practical effects oh yeah Baker's, me too me too uh, yeah but you Baker's know kong to me is the most moving and part of that is because yeah it's a man in a suit a really good suit and a suit whose facial um expressions are so amazing because of the hydraulics behind them and i forget i'm watching hydraulics because it, it's so beautifully done um mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. effects in all four you know were, were the best for their day yeah if we're going to judge them as pure cinema you probably have to say that the original is the best movie mm-hmm. in terms of effects for its time, graded on a curve, etc. But people lambast the effects of 76. It did, not for nothing. It and Logan's Run both got special effects Oscars that year, and I think they both deserved them because this was pre-computer stuff that came in the next year with uh, Star Wars and, and Close Encounters. Uh, so that was a sidebar to a sidebar to a sidebar. You asked me <laughs> about some of the things I... I, I like in the new movie. So let's get back to that muskox. Um, it's, yeah. it's beautifully realized on on a you know opticals and, a, and effects and sound level. But let's talk about also what it means. What it means to me is you have this poor creature, very pitiable yet gigantic creature, and uh, it has been victimized in Apocalypse. Now the thing is beheaded. Yeah. Okay. Climactically here we're sort of asked to, to think about it as a representative of its own indigenous land. Again, like the people who were living over there when we, when we invaded. 
you know, she wants to help it and she can't, uh, Brie Larson's character. And <laughs> it's cute. She's pushing against that thing and uh, against, what is it, a log over it? What is it? I, I think it's like a, the busted helicopter, wasn't it? Like the tail end of a helicopter? Oh, there you go. Yeah. Well, there you go. Even better. Mm-hmm. There, that's a great great image, a great metaphor again. And she can't budge it. Even with adrenaline, she can't get it up. And Kong comes and lifts it up. And so what is Kong doing there? For a lesser mammal, a less intelligent, less evolved mammal, he is practicing the proper stewardship of creation. The opposite of what these people who come in and drop bombs are doing. He's caring for, geez, to get biblical about it, the least of these, a wounded muskox. There's also that great moment that when it walks away, you see it's not that big because Kong's standing in the same shot and he's big. You know? Right. The muskox is, I don't know, 35 feet long or something like that, and then it's Kong towering above it. And, and that was kind of a nice little, little moment, I thought, too. So that thing's cool. What else did we like, Derek? Great cast. Yeah. Great I'm, cast. We might have uh, wished for better characters, but a great cast. Yeah, I think the, the cast was great for what they had to work with and what they were allowed to do. I think the cast is solid. I'm Samuel L. Jackson, he's kind of one note for most of it, but I, I really enjoyed what he did. And Brie Larson, I am I mean, she was amazing in room. She was amazing in room. But now yeah. seeing her in a big blockbuster type movie. I am eager to yeah. see what she's going to do because she's going to be in Captain Marvel and the Marvel Comics films, the MCU. So I'm, I'm eager to see yeah. how she acts in that film, knowing that she can bring some of the uh, what she does best to a big budget movie. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. And Goodman's always good. This is, by the way, uh, the second movie in the last decade that he's done in which his character has something integral to do with uh, simians. Can you name the other one, the predecessor to this? People out there in Monster Kid Radio Land. Okay. So he he did play Chambers in Argo. Is that what you're referring yes. to? Okay. You shoot these guys. I, I, of course, you're going to get it there. I can't fool you. <laughs> he plays John Chambers. Right. The, the, the maker of the ape, amazing ape makeups for their time. Exactly. For the original. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And so here he is um, dealing with more anthropoidal material. Yeah. And he's great. And he's kind of dressed like Carl Denham in some spots. Yeah. yeah like Denham? Yeah. Yeah, he did. He did. How interesting, too, in a movie where, again, the mythos is, is racially loaded, uh, specifically right. to Africa, and our villain is African-American. That's a turnabout. It's no longer the big ape that problematically, of course, hyper-problematically represents the people of African descent, explicitly or implicitly. Explicitly, I would say, in 33 Kong. It's another issue I have with it. There is a big dark figure, but it's actually an African-American representing African-Americans. And he is so tied up in his military career that that ultimately is what he's representing. Does that mean that we're in a post-racial society? No, we're not. But there's been progress made such that this mythos is at least kind of able to to move away. It, it, it's kind of like in Rise of the Planet of the Apes when, when the Uberville and the CEO was played by a, a British actor, I believe British, Maybe Australian? Anyway, uh, a fine actor, David, I can't pronounce his last name, um, of -hmm. African descent. It's like, well, okay, so now this is a 21st century Planet of the Apes movie, and we've kind of moved past that that troubling um, metaphor from Conquest. And we're into a place where a black actor can play the human villain, and because we're, we're not we're not really in that other place anymore. We're, we're farther separated from our troubling 
history and and the the, the awful legacy of of slavery. And you know, you know, you and I did the two parter before right. about the first three Kongs, and we just uh, said uh, right at the top that this is very difficult stuff yeah. to talk about the race stuff. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't. I actually think it means you should. It's writ large across the history of our nation, and so of course it's in our cinema and 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 our genre cinema in some ways. I think is it what what shows subconsciously what's really going on in our nation because it's quote unquote entertainment um, and not quote unquote about things. You and I know that the Planet of the Apes films, for example, were about a lot. Oh yeah, I mean they're they're great sci-fi adventure films, but if you spend more than just a few minutes thinking about it, you're going to get past that. And, and you're going to see, I mean, and you see that in a lot of genre cinema. I mean, you, you can kind of hide, for lack of a better term, a lot of this social commentary in genre film. And you see that in Kong. You see that in these films, in the Planet of the Apes films. And like you said, you can't shy away from it. You shouldn't. I mean, our country's got a lot of issues. <laughs> and, and, and historically, we've got a lot of problems. And I, I still feel like we haven't dealt with some of the things that we should have dealt with by now. I mean, come on. But... Yeah. You can deal with them a little bit in some of these movies. So I have no problem seeing that here and discussing it. And I think it's important to do so as well as enjoy the movie for what it is. Yeah. Right. And the other thing is, you know, Serling himself said, Rod Serling said uh, that uh, I think it was Patty Chayefsky said, oh, why did you just sign on to do a spook show for CBS? And Serling said something like, well, because the network won't let me do a show about blacks and whites in the deep south, but I can do one about Martians and the museums. So genre becomes kind of a stalking horse or a perfect instrument by which to safely explore these issues without being, you know, censored or lambasted. He got away with things back then that he couldn't have without the genre trappings. Yep. Maybe today you have a little bit more free exercise of, of speech in these areas, but you don't in terms of Hollywood funding. Right. You have to kind of hide it in there. And is that sort of what happens with Kong Skull Island? Well, it's not hidden at all. It's up front and center, and I think they're using it as, as a marketing device. Look at the poster, like you said. That's marketing. Is it going to draw more people who want substance in a genre movie, who want substance in a Kong movie? Yeah, maybe it will. I, my friend Eric Green, he is the Planet of the Apes scholar. He's number one. You know, he wrote the seminal book. Planet of the Apes as American Myth, Race, Culture, and Politics. Eric himself is biracial, and I mention that only because he mentions it in the beginning of his book, as giving him that perspective from which to look at the Planet of the Apes films, which are very much about race. And by the way, the first ape film co-written by Serling, with, with, with a writer, Mike Wilson, who'd been blacklisted. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be a political genre film. And then even though other people are involved, like Paul Dane, for the rest of the series, it remains a very political series. And I will say as a kid who was interested in politics from a very early age, that I could tell there was a lot going on there, and I knew what some of it was about. In Beneath the Planet of the Apes, you see them walking around with their protest signs, getting trampled by the guerrilla army, and you know exactly what that's about in 1970 when the movie comes out. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Other of it, I had to really read Eric's book and it's like, oh my God, yeah, I kind of thought that, but you've pinpointed it and articulated it so well. There are some great scholarly books about, about the Kongs. They'll have a few things to say about the new one, but uh, I don't think there was that much to say about Jackson's. I think the first two 
lend themselves, you know, they're the best of the series, and I think they lend themselves a lot more readily to uh, mm-hmm. something other than surface analysis. Yep. And other than, well, let's talk about the special effects. And, you know, I don't mean to demean that discussion, but it it should really just to be the beginning of the discussion of a spectacle movie, not not the end of it. I think that's probably what this movie excels at, is the special effects, the spectacle part of it. Yeah. I feel like it does miss a few opportunities. What else about the film did you enjoy, though? I mean, again, I want listeners to know that while we are being critical, it's you know it's what we do. We we also enjoy parts of the movie. Like I said, I talked about the sound design. You talked about that sequence with the musk ox. That's that's a moving sequence. That that whole bit, yeah. that whole scene is amazing. That she's off on her own doing that, and then Kong just it's a beautiful scene. They bond in their in, and Kong in the, and Brie yes. bond in their empathy for the musk ox, and honestly, mm-hmm. in their politics. She, at one point, is called a war photographer. She said, no, I'm a peace photographer. That's a very 1970, yeah. very 1973 line. I loved it, and it, yeah. it immediately puts me, you know, in her court. Okay, so the prologue is kind of cool. I think it's a little too fast-paced for me. I would have liked maybe an extended moment um, between the two before they go after each other, but the appearance is a surprise. Well, not for people listening to the show. It <laughs> um, was was well done, and then that that you know the gunships dropping the bombs, and then Kong coming up and throwing the palm tree, presumably, um, and then attacking, and them trying to attack back and failing miserably. Even though I was taken out of it a little bit by the thought of just get out of there and 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 figure out what you're going to do now, I thought it was a very exciting sequence. It was great to see Kong sure. Kong kicking butt there. At that point in the movie, I guess I'm relating more to the human characters. And the Kong's doing what he's doing because they're they're bombing his island, but still, he's a monster. And as the movie progresses, he becomes increasingly uh, an object of our sympathy and even our empathy. And that is the direction that you want uh, to go uh, in a Kong film. From pure threat, from creature as pure threat to creature as threatening hero threatened and threatening hero. Yeah, I would have liked to spend a little bit more time with Kong as hero. Yeah. I did a pre... I mean, they did what they could with what they had. I, I did like Hiddleston's, where are you going? Well, I'm going to go save Kong. I was like, well, that, that was nice. <laughs> uh, I, I, I would have liked to have seen more of them on the same side. And that's one thing that I worry about Godzilla versus King Kong or, yeah. or whatever yeah. they're going to call it is at the end of Godzilla 2014, they call him the King of the Monsters. And it's clear that he's trying to destroy the Mutos and, and save the planet, basically. And in this one, Kong is trying to save the island. He's a good guy as well. So how are they going to fight if they're both on the same side? I, I, don't, I don't know. We'll see what happens, I guess. But, Maybe Gidra comes and they uh, have to pull their resources. I don't know. There you go. That's probably what's going to happen, right? They're going to fight, and then the other three monsters are going to show up, and they have to team up. Classic comic book team-up stuff, right? Yeah, and I enjoyed Destroy All Monsters when, when it came out, and I was very sure. young, and I saw it in the theater, and it was a lot of fun. But looking back on it, sure. are there too many monsters? Yeah, by about 12. So, well, it just becomes a monster mashup party, and I love House of Frankenstein, mm-hmm. and I like House of Dracula. There are an awful lot of monsters in those movies, and so it does cause you to lose focus. As a Cheney Jr. fan and a Wolfman fan, um, I, I always find myself wanting a little bit more of Larry Talbot in both of those movies. Uh, he's a hero in House of Dracula, but mostly in human form. It's nice to see right. him Well, we are way off on uber tangent at this point, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, you know what, Derek? You're wandering away from our, our self-assignment, which was to find more things that we like 
about Kong Scott. Yeah, um, I know, right? I, I went and did it that time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did, but notice, notice why. Because yeah. we can find things we like, but overall it was a disappointment to us because we're big Kong fans. I think this movie's going to work yeah. better for younger people who maybe haven't seen any or many of the prior Kongs. And then A Giant Gorilla is rather novel. And the skull crawlers may be more interesting. Let's uh, just say it again. When you say more Kong time, I'm going to say, yeah, just shift the nature of it. Less of Kong battling skull crawlers and more of Kong bonding with humans, particularly Brie Larson. I'd like to see that. Um, I think we talked about the cast, how much we appreciated the cast. And there was one guy in the movie that was in it for just a second mm. that I wish there was more of. And I don't think he even gets a chance to speak outside of a couple of lines in the film. Uh, his name's Robert Taylor. Uh, he, he's the ship captain. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you watch Longmire, uh, the TV show, he's Longmire. And, and I really love him as an actor, and I would have liked to have seen more with him. But, again, that's just because I like him as an actor. Okay. I, <laughs> uh, I, I, I didn't notice him. I know that the, the first three, I think, have very good captains, all three of them. Yeah. Yeah. And John Ortiz in the new film was good, too. I liked the scene, scenes of tension between the factions. That could have been played up even yeah. a little bit more for me. But I mm-hmm. liked what was there and the negotiation of guns pointed at each other. And before that, kind of um, the ramp up to guns pointed, which is um, a little bit of negotiating or bargaining in terms of, you know, we're going back. No, we're not. We're going to go get saved. And, uh, you know, did I did I mishear this? Or did our heroine, Br- Brie Larson's character, basically basically say, we're not going back for someone. Um, we're getting the hell out of here. Because if she said that, granted, that is the practical, rational thing to do, because you and I know, as Spock said, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. Mm-hmm. But it's a strange line to give to a heroine who's defined in large part by her empathy. And if, if her character did say that, if I heard that right, that she was essentially siding with the notion of, yeah, there may be someone left behind and he may be alive, but we got to get the hell out of here. That's a pretty brave choice on the screenwriter's part to, to take this yeah. girl and, and give her that. Well, and, and she's not some weepy woman of the, you know, pre pre women's movement, uh, era. She is a 73 character who in some ways acts like a contemporary to our times woman, but, uh, Am I correct there? Did that happen? Uh, you know, I don't. I'd have to go back and rewatch it again. I, I um, I, I feel like you're right. Because uh. Hiddleston was saying right, but it, Hiddleston was saying no, yeah, we have to go. Yeah. And I, you know, they were allied, and I think she had a line too that was basically saying, "I'm sorry, uh, screw him. <laughs> if he's out there, yeah. God help yeah. him." But we got a whole bunch of people here, and we have a window of opportunity. Uh, to go get lifted out. I think that was the gist of what she too was saying. And that's pretty interesting to me. When I came home, Brenda didn't see the movie with me. She wasn't able to get out to the theater this weekend. But when I came home, I told her, you know, I think you really, really would have liked that character because she does have that contemporary edge, which I think you probably need for a contemporary audience, even though it is set in the seventies. I think she would have liked that character. And I think a lot of people can, connect to that character in the film I, again it goes back to the cast for me yeah. what do i like about the movie the most i like the cast yeah. I, th- I wish they had more to do uh, but with what they had john ortiz was great you know and, and i liked uh, 
oh, forget the one young soldier's name that gets separated from the group and he's with the John Goodman party. Oh, um, the one who writing a letter and his head to his son the whole time. Yeah. That was a nice. Oh, and I liked him too. Nice yeah, he was talk. great. Yeah. Was, he's the one that they're going after, I think, the one that they're hoping is still alive. Right. Chapman, the character right. of Chapman. Yeah, I, I did like that quite a bit too. And, you know, speaking of Chapman, I liked. Okay. <laughs> the, the, skull, the skull vomiting? Are you going to tell, talk about skull vomiting now? No. Okay. I, I didn't like the skull I vomiting. I thought that was, was a little too, too on the nose. Way too convenient. Vomit I was out, like, yeah, really? Skull some dog tags? No. 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 But what I did like is that when Conrad shows the dog tags to Packard, I, I liked that little exchange, mm-hmm. despite how he got it. Right. I liked that he shows him the dog tags, like, no, Chapman said, and then Packard holds up the others. Yeah, and so are these guys, and we're going to go get Kong. I liked that moment, yep. that exchange. You know why? Because it's cinematic. They're doing something visually that yes. is through a long speech. Yeah. 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 So I liked that, despite how he got the dog tags. Because <laughs> that was just a little too on the nose. It's like, come on, really? Okay. Oh, and another nom comparison, by the way, uh, we talked about the gunships. How about that boat kind of trundling along uh, through the uh, the inland river? That's totally apocalypse uh-huh. now. You know, much of, oh, which, totally. much of which takes place on a boat with a ragtag crew. And that's what we've got here. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, totally. Yeah, no, no, no doubt, no question whatsoever. Jensen even looks a tiny bit like uh, Young Martin Sheen. Huh. Kind of. Kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good actor. Well, I mean, both. Anyway, both good actors. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah I, I, I don't think yeah. one of those actors that you know, I never mind spending time with. The, sort of the great white hunter here, but uh, not a hunter. No, I take that back. He's not a hunter. If he's out hunting for something, it's, right. what is he hunting for? Well, he sees a mercenary, but it, it's not. Uh, it, he's he's. I think he's supposed to be a protective guide, basically. Isn't that what he's hired on for? Yeah, he's a he's a great tracker. Yeah. Get these people out alive. Did you find a character shift in him? And I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing. Where initially he's defined by being essentially a, you know, kind of a cold mercenary, and as the movie progresses, he turns into more of a warm-hearted hero, like we have in Jeff Bridges or in uh, Adrian Brody. I did see that. I felt like with the scene with the cigarette lighter, uh, that was. Yeah an opportunity for him to change. And, you know, maybe I, maybe I need to take back what I said earlier about there not being any character arcs as, as clumsy as it might've been. There was mm-hmm. that shift when he pulls out the cigarette lighter and he starts to connect with Mason Weaver a little bit. That said, I was a little disappointed and, and I understand why it had to be done when she threw the cigarette lighter away. I wish it was him throwing the cigarette lighter away because it was his father's cigarette lighter. And I wanted him to make that choice and just give it a little bit more oomph. But right. You know, Again, what if, right? It gives her more um, of a direct uh, role uh, yeah. in the proceeding. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, it, really, those are both good aims, one from a character point of view and one from kind of more of a political in the sense of gender point of view. Yeah. But, you know, just slow down a little bit, guys, and and, uh, and reduce the skull-crawling um, battles, and then you have room to find an opportunity for her to show agency and for him to have that moment of throwing away, um, you know, his baggage. One of the things I guess I like most about 76 is its pacing. And when you only have one giant snake and you don't have skull crawlers or dinosaurs around every corner or giant insects. And of course, uh, you know, Oh five is kind of the, the extreme case of loading up with, with, uh, creature battles. You slow it down. It really becomes a story about Kong and people. 
even though the skull crawlers are a cool design, and I like this notion of they're bipe- bipedal with no arms, and, and, and that kind of third limb is the tail, and they can balance, and it becomes like if T-Rexes continued to evolve but evolve into hell, this is what you would get. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. I, I like seeing them. I, I enjoyed the fact that I got exposed to a new and rather you know novel creature. But I don't need to spend a half an hour of screen time watching them fight King Kong um, and or attack uh, our, our human characters. You know, I could have done without the snake in 76. It wasn't particularly well done. I mean, its approach was all right, but once it wrapped around Kong, and you can read about the troubles they had with that so-called effect. But we didn't even really need that snake, except in terms of giving Kong a chance to put her down in order to defend her, and then she escapes with Bridges' character, with Jack. But, you know, just <sighs> more Kong time. I mean, I'm being redundant. I'm sorry. No, okay. hey, it's yeah. I I I'm enjoying the conversation. One, but two, I agree with you more. More with just Kong. I, I the skull crawlers. I mean, it's yeah, they're a neat design. Whatever. Uh, they look kind of cool. It's kind of clever. I think the way they did just that they're they're bipedal, like you said. And I thought that was an interesting visual choice to give them that. But. Yeah, do we need to have as much time as we did? Do we have to have the all the little ones? And, oh, hey, there's the big one. Do we have to have that? Do we need that? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. Oh, I know. I was talking about pacing. Yeah, and, and, and I've heard criticisms, obviously, and a mutual friend of ours leaps to mind, uh, who shall be nameless, um, <laughs> saying that the first one's a better movie because it's got more dinosaurs in it. You know, uh, yeah, that's fine if you're talking about Jurassic Park or a movie that is principally about dinosaurs, but a movie that's principally about Kong, and as any Kong movie should be, in my opinion, about the Kong-girl relationship, then dinosaurs, if any, can be a distraction, and skull crawlers too. So the slow pacing of, of 76, and that seems slow to me as I'm watching it, by the way. It seems dead on. But to the extent that there's less action or fewer action scenes. A, that gives more opportunity for the, the romantic bond from his end and the f- friendship bond, hey, I, I like you, but not in that way, from her end toward him. And when there is an action scene, like the log scene, I think it works rather well. And the action stuff in, in New York in 76 as well, I think works nicely. And again, it's dynamics. Skull crawler, skull crawler, skull crawler. There's your thrill ride. And it is nonstop. Now just make another case for the thrill ride that has some let your heart start slow down a bit so that we can bring it up to the roof again. Give us give us those pauses, those moments to catch our breath so that we can enjoy the next bit just as much. Need a, need a little bit of that. And yeah, this one didn't really seem to slow down very much. And, and there was a there was uh, a soft drink ad when I was a kid and the slogan I can't remember was soft drink. The pause that refreshes. <laughs> that was the slogan. The seven up or Sprite or something, maybe Fresca, and the pause that refreshes. I get it. You just pause and pop the, the can and take a nice sip, and and then a skull crawler comes after you. Right. You know, there should have been more soda pop in this movie, there's, metaphorically speaking, and more, as we keep saying, more Kong and character, Kong with humans, and particularly more Kong with really fine actor Brie, Brie Larson. I, I wanted to give her more to do. Yep. Especially, especially relative to Kong. She's got the three. But, you know, it was predictable. 
at least to me. Oh, yeah. They've got that first moment over the muskox, over the muskox. The second one, she touches him. So we are kind of ramping toward the inevitable, which is needed in every Kong film. But it seems cursory here, which is that he's going to hold her in his gigantic hand. And that moment, even though it's like, yep, there it is, and I'm kind of glad to see it, also reminded me of everything that could have been, everything that was in previous versions and was not to be here. And immediately cut short or and or interrupted by a hey, skull crawler attack. Yeah, right. Yeah, as soon as he picks her <laughs> Once up. Once yep. more with him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. yeah. Overall, you, you texted me yesterday and asked me what I thought of it. You said three out of four. Are you still at three out of four? At this point, no, 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 no. Three out of five. Oh, three out of five. Excuse no, no, me, three I out of five. Yeah, okay. I do a five. I do a five star rating okay. always. Uh, three out of five. Okay. And I'm giving it an edge. I mean, really, it's a, it's really a two and a half star movie. But uh-huh. my love of Kong, you know, on the one hand, it, it makes me demand more from a Kong movie. But overriding that is, well, there's a big ape, man, and, and <laughs> there's a there's a great big ape, and and I love that every time. See, this is where it's turning into um, from my end. Uh, the Chris Farley show. Uh, remember that part where, where the big ape threw the palm tree through the gunship uh, and then attacked the other gunship? That was awesome. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. And it was awe-inspiring. And it gets an extra half star for being a Kong film and for showing me a big, cool ape. Now, the question becomes, is this Kong an ape? I will tell you that the one in 33 is a gorilla and acts like a gorilla, primarily, and the one in Peter Jackson's, too. So in number two and number four, I think you can make an argument that this isn't an ape. Well, actually, in all of them, because of its size, it's not necessarily an ape as we know it, but in, in uh, one and three, there is knuckle-walking and um, lifting up onto the haunches from time to time, but not stalking around like a biped. And in two and four, there is, and so that raises the question, if this giant ape, bigger than any ape we've ever seen in, in the real world, is walking around essentially upright and erect and showing signs of intelligence that we don't necessarily see in uh, mountain gorillas, uh, is it an ape or is it something just a little bit farther along as if the ape line continued to evolve in this you know, Galapagos-like secluded uh, spot. And you know, I just put that question out there to ponder, if you will. It is something to consider because you know, you're absolutely right. There, there is more to it than just like the knuckle drag. Yeah. The knuckle walking. Yeah. yeah. The knuckle walking. He does use yeah. tools. He does a little bit more than what you would consider ape activity or gorilla activity. Yeah. Uh, so you're at three out of five. I think I'm probably about three and a half out of five. I, I mean, I, I'm glad I got to see it on the big screen. I mean, I think this, this movie does demand oh, yeah. just for the sound alone. If you can find a theater with a great sound system, it's going to sound great. And it looks fantastic. Uh, it, it's, yeah. it's a spectacle. You know, it really is. But in terms of meat and weight to it, I don't think you're going to get as much as you can get, especially from the first two Kongs. Right. Uh, but I'm sure it's going to do well enough to keep legendary pictures afloat, okay. which is good because legendary has been For kind sure. of struggling a little bit. And, uh, the next one is what Godzilla King of the monsters. That's the next one in the monster verse. See what that does. And then ultimately the two will collide. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. The two and more, because from the, uh, post credits, post yeah. credits, we see, as I recall, Ghidra, Mothra, and was Rodan in there too. Yeah. It's the three of them, Rodan, Mothra, and King Ghidra. And, and I feel like whatever movie that's going to be, whether it's Godzilla versus Kong or 
Godzilla, King of the Monsters, whatever movie that ends up going to be, there's going to be a lot of monster action in that. So I'm, 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 I'm yeah. eager to see more monsters, sure, but at at what cost? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the second Tim Burton Batman to me had one too many supervillains. Um, I wanted it to be about Batman and Catwoman, and I found the Penguin stuff distracting. Well, and even Christopher Walken in that film, I mean, throwing him in there as well yeah. as a bad guy, you've got so much going on, yeah. Yeah, just didn't mean Penguin. And frankly, if we're going to reboot Rodan, can we please turn it from a giant pterodactyl into a, a giant French painter? Because that would be a fascinating <laughs> way to reimagine. You want to talk about reimagining, <laughs> huh? <laughs> well, on that note, Paul. Take you that was left field. Left field. Oh I man! Left. I always go left. You know that. Uh, there we go. There we go. Well, Paul, uh, you know, I love talking King Kong with you, man. This has been a lot of fun. Even if we had some frustrations about the movie, it's always a great conversation. And, uh, you know, like I said, I did see your pictures on Facebook about uh, going out to Hollywood and meeting with Ed Asner and and maybe something happening with Unplugged, which would be great. So fingers crossed for that. I hope that happens. Yeah, is this part of the program where I I shamelessly shill? Hey, please feel free, man. Okay, plug away. That was a, a sketch on SNL maybe 20 years ago. Uh, <laughs> plug away. They'd have guests onto the show simply to plug. And that was, the, that was the content of the show. As Greg Starrett, oh, that was a wonderful episode you did with Greg. I adored that. That was one of the best ever, Derek. Oh, good. Thanks, You guys man. were so in sync. You were so in sync. And your love, alongside his, your love for Grimplane and the man who laughs was, was so authentic. And, you know, I learned a lot from the episode. I don't know much much about silent horror cinema, and I learned a lot. And uh, you know, I, okay, I'm not objective because I played the lead, Doctor Harrison, in The Laughing Man. You played uh, the Laughing Man, and I acted in that, and so I can't be totally objective. But um, you were building that thing up so much, I was worried that it wasn't going to hold up. Oh no! Yeah, I heard it once before, and you can say, "Oh, this is really great. We're going to do it at the end. Just wait." And and then I'm like, "Oh, geez, I don't know if it can hold up." But Greg and and friends wrote a really fine script that it was my absolute privilege and honor to act in to to perform. And the whole episode that you did with Greg, I thought it was just stellar. And kudos to you both. I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, you know, I've actually gotten some good feedback on that. People seem to enjoy The Laughing Man. Uh, I know I really did. Yeah. Greg and a couple other people. And I, I created this. I founded Macabre Publication. Mm-hmm. Paul McComas founded Macabre. And this was when we were uh, 12, 13, 14. And, and I did Alani Jr. magazine for Lon Chaney Jr. And I also did Fright Monsters, which edged towards science fiction as I got older, just like I did. And so Greg did Conrad, a magazine about Conrad Fright. And my friend John Scott, who I'd like to put you in touch with, he did The Many Faces of Price, MFP which also was a secret ingredient in Crest, toothpaste, MFP. <laughs> and, uh, and our friend in New York State, Jimmy Waters, he did Wolves and Werewolves. And uh, that was Macabre Publications. So, you know, Greg and I go way, way, way back, and I'm just so thrilled to, to, to see him getting the exposure that he has, he has always deserved. Greg and I are working on The Mummy's Cruise. He mentioned this. This is not a sequel, but a follow-up to Fit for a Frankenstein um, which you've been kind enough to to uh, praise here here and there, where we fill in uh, a costuming inconsistency, a wardrobe malfunction, if you will, and goes to Frankenstein and turn it into a novella for some reason. And here we're we're taking the uh, two and a half minute sequence in the mummy's tomb, 
where they get caries from uh, Egypt all the way over to Mapleton, Massachusetts. And uh, no, 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 not two and a half minutes. That has to be a, a novella as well. All kinds of hijinks on that boat. And like Greg said in his episode last week, we try to thread this needle where we're being consistent with and respectful of, because we love it, the original uh, movie or the original monster franchise mm-hmm. from the 40s. But at the same time, getting in as much humor as we can. And I feel really good about how we managed that with Fit for Frankenstein. And from what we've written so far, mostly Greg, of The Mummy's Cruise, um, I think we're in the zone again. Watch for it. And I'm going to say 2018. Okay. Yeah, so I'm working on this Edgar G. Ulmer book with uh, David Lewiston, my friend and colleague. He's the arts and entertainment editor of Milwaukee's uh, free weekly, The Shepherd Express. That's someone who made, she's 45 movies from the age of 11 to 19, most of them genre. Uh, I'm, I've always related to Ulmer and his, his ability to, to make uh, entertaining films that were sometimes actually pretty good films on half of a shoestring budget. And then, I, yeah, yeah, I went out to, to L.A., to Hollywood, um, got to spend most of the day with one of my absolute heroes, both for his acting and his activism, Ed Asner. He's 87 years young, still working with all the amazing, progressive, empathetic organizations that one would want him to, still doing a lot of work. You know that he was the voice of the old man in Up not too long ago, mm-hmm. and he was telling me about another animated feature that, that he um, is, has been shopping around with, uh, with its originator. And yeah, so Eric Green and Ed and I had a lovely three-hour lunch, and then he, and then Ed says, "Go back to my place, Paul." And it wasn't a question; it was it was a directive from Lou Grant, <laughs> and uh, got to hang out with him and Ed Weinberger, who fans of the Mary Tyler Moore Show will remember as kind of principal writing force behind that show. And then he went on to uh, create Taxi and a lot of other great uh, uh, TV of the '70s and '80s. That was fascinating. We just three of us sat and talked about Mary Tyler Moore episodes for for an hour, which was a nice tribute to Mary since she passed away recently. The day that she did pass away, I I shot a condolence email to Ed, and then I went outside and threw my hat up into the air, which seemed the best way to pay tribute to her, um, if you know the opening yeah. credits of that show. Yeah. And uh, I met with Michael York uh, to talk about our ongoing um, charity, Renewal, that, that we co-founded a couple of years ago, Research Exploring New Amyloidosis Learning. And uh, Michael is, is fighting the battle against amyloidosis, and he and I are fighting it together with the Medical College of Wisconsin through Renewal, which obviously takes its name from Logan's Run. I hope that the audiobook for Logan's Journey will see the light of day. And Michael York and Jenny Agater are, are both uh, committed to reprising their roles from the 76 film as Logan and Jessica. There has been a legal issue um, not involving them or me or, or our producer in England. Um, and we're going to try and see what we can do about that. And then let's see, also in LA, yeah, as you mentioned, I unplugged my, my first novel, second book, the thing I'm proudest of. It seems to be moving forward into what you could call pre pre production, um, <laughs> or at least development. I signed a letter of intent with Wendy Elford Argent. She is half of a filmmaking team. Uh, he's from England, she's from Wisconsin. Um, those are, you know, kind of two of my favorite places on earth. One I come from, and the other one is responsible for an outsized number of brilliant uh, artists of every medium and genre. That would be Wisconsin. No. Um, and and uh, we signed a letter of intent to develop Unplugged into in the indie feature. We've been in correspondence for a while and looking at each other's work. 
they dig my screenplay and I dig their most recent feature, people should check this out. I put it in the same um, genre as Memento and Mulholland Drive, although it's more lucid than that one. Okay. It's called Fragmented, okay. a 2016 indie feature. Yeah, I believe it's on Netflix. I know you can also buy it on DVD. Uh, and, and that genre that I would fit it into with those other two is the mind genre, the mind F dash 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 <laughs> genre, wherein stuff starts to happen partway through that makes you reconsider everything you've experienced. So it does that through the genres of crime, drama, psychological, thriller, mystery, um, and uh, takes place in Mexico City. And they, they do a wonderful job, she and her husband, Doug Elford Argent, the director. She's the star and the editor and the writer, and he is the director. They have a wonderful cinematographer. And what they've done on a very small budget is really astounding. So kudos and shout-out to uh, Wendy and uh, Doug Elford Argent, Wendy and Doug Elford Argent, and their, their 2016 feature, Fragmented. Catch it. Sounds good. I'll, uh, I'll look into that. I think we've, con- we've concluded, I believe, the, the showing and plugging. <laughs> um, we've ended with unplugged, so that's ironic because my projects will never go unplugged when I'm on the show, Darren. <laughs> good, yeah, <laughs> there, there is that. But they will go unplugged. They will go unplugged when I call in. Well, when you call in, though, I always make sure people know that people can find you online at your website at paulmccomas.com, where you post all of your news, and there are connections or links to all the books that you've been involved with, either written and or edited. It's all there. We'll make sure there's a link in the show notes on this episode as well. And uh, you know, we just got to come up with some more reasons to have you on the show in the future, man. <laughs> Stop. No, you're the, you're the once-in-future Rondo winner. So get out of here. Uh, yeah. And everybody vote for Derek, and not just for uh, podcast, but also for Monster Kid of the Year. You know... I don't know any bigger ones. So many people... Oh, man, that's just... Hmm. It's you. Well, thank you. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's you. <laughs> it is. Well, thanks, Paul. Come on, kid. Get out of all here. Right, right, we love right. you. We love you. Get out of here, kid. <laughs> thanks, Paul. <laughs> so, for Paul, Kong Skull Island is a three out of five star film. For me... Ah, you know, I go back and forth because I agree with almost everything Paul had to say. I respect Paul's opinion immensely. He is a film scholar. He goes above and beyond when it comes to dissecting and interpreting these films for what they are. He doesn't look at the intention. He looks at the result and comes up with his own takeaway from these films. And I respect the heck out of him for that. And I agree with him a lot of the time. And I hope this conversation didn't sound too negative. I think he and I both tried real hard to weigh a lot of our criticisms against some of the things that we liked about the movie. While our definitions may be different, the movie was a thrill ride for me in that it just kept going and going and going. No, it didn't have those lulls that you typically see in a lot of thrill rides, but then I'm also not a roller coaster guy, so maybe I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to thrill rides. Man, I can't make myself laugh. My throat is killing me. Anyway, Paul, thank you for being part of the show this week. I hope the monster kids out there got something from the conversation because I know I sure as heck did. Like I said at the beginning of the show, we've got some comments from some listeners of Monster Kid Radio, so... Let's hear from them. Hey, Derek, and all the Monster Kids listening, this is Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club and the Classic Horrors Club podcast. Richard Chamberlain and I attended the Kong Skull Island screening last Thursday night at the Alamo Draft House in Kansas City. Even though we were bribed with souvenir magazines and custom glasses, I still really enjoyed the movie. There was nothing I didn't like about Kong himself. From his face that reminded me of the original, to the way he walked and moved, and to the physical threat and presence that he was. 
Of course, the story was basic and the characters weren't completely developed. But you know what? I don't care. I got exactly what I wanted out of it, and I was not disappointed. If you're listening to Monster Kid Radio, there's absolutely no reason you shouldn't see this movie. And I bet you already have. Thanks, Derek. Take care. Hey, Derek. Steve Sullivan here at SteveSullivan.com. Just calling in for Kong Skull Island. I enjoyed the heck out of it. I was really wary of it going in, and uh, especially didn't like the previews I'd seen with John C. Riley. But I enjoyed all the characters. I enjoyed the setup. I enjoyed the fact that they were uh, setting it up for the potential Kong-Godzilla crossover. I thought the giant monster battles were good. I didn't mind the fact that there weren't any real dinosaurs in it, uh, unless you want to count the Archosaur pterodactyl-like things, but even those, I'm not sure. And there was a Triceratops skull, I'll admit that. But, you know, dinos are important to me and Kong, but Kong full of an island of hostile creatures, I thought it, I thought it really worked really well. I thought it was a, uh, a really kind of clever reimagining of what Kong was going to be in this, in this particular universe, and I thought they did it well. I, I liked all the characters too. I thought it was, um, you know, to get into the, the, uh, the meat of this, I, I know that Paul McComas and I are not going to agree on this. I knew that even before I, he posted like a micro review on one of my posts about Kong Skull Island. So, you know, <laughs> for every Kong show with him, you're going to have to have a rebuttal Kong show with me or something like that. <laughs> We're doing our Siskel and Ebert thing and, and I'm still Ebert. So, uh, anyway, I'm sure there probably wasn't enough beauty in this and his kind of love for the beauty and the beast thing but but Kong has just always been more than that and for me it had enough Kong interaction with uh, one of the main female characters and I don't want to go too much further than that to spoil it for people but again I thought it was fun I give it four stars out of five had a hell of a good time with it I'll go see it again probably in the uh, the next week or so and uh, there you go, Kong Skull Island, worth seeing, uh, worthy successor. Is it my second favorite Kong movie of all time? Probably not, just because I really, really love Son of Kong, which I think we did on your show, Once Upon a Time. This week in Cushing Horrors, Vincent dallies with a lover and contemplates a new sculpture for his waxworks. CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com. Anyway, have a great week. Talk to you soon. Steve Sullivan. Signing out. Hello, Derek and Monster Kid Radio. My name is Dr. Horror Brew from 50 Foot Brewing and the Good Beer, Bad Movie Night podcast. I was fortunate to see Kong twice this weekend. I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed it. Kong brought it on every level, from the CG to the acting to the storyline. It was amazing. And with the link to the Godzilla franchise... I'm extremely excited to see what Legendary has in store for us in the future. I want to thank you personally, Derek, for doing such a great job on Monster Kid Radio. Keep up the good work. Hi, Derek. This is Roger calling all the way from Northeast Tennessee. Uh, long-time listener, and in fact, I have listened to every single episode of MKR and love them all. Um, I prepared myself for the new movie by watching all the previous Kong incarnations Except for a 2005 version, it's just too long for a casual viewing. But uh, I recently picked up the Japanese Blu-ray of King Kong because of your mentioning it on a few podcasts recently. 
And uh, that's one I truly do love. I, mean, I love the original, of course, but love the 76 version because it's one of the very first monster movies I saw as a kid. Anyway, uh, I was able to see Kong Skull Island with my son and daughter on Thursday night, and we absolutely loved it. Had a ball with it. The theater doesn't have uh, IMAX, but it does have a couple of screens that are just gigantic. And I was able to get a couple of tickets smack dab in the middle. It was a great experience. Um, I love the fact that it was more of a survival movie than a Beauty and the Beast tale. Uh, that kind of story has been filmed way too many times. And uh, I did feel like the trailers ruined some of the great moments in the film, but we still had a, an awesome experience with it. The effects were incredible, even though CGI, CGI was remarkable in this. Um, the cinematography and the general camera angles of the action sequences were somewhat unique. Um, the deaths were not dramatically overdone. They were exactly what would happen if a gigantic, gigantic animal get a hold of you. Um, the overall myth and arc as it flows into the Godzilla theme of being a guardian instead of an outright monster is there and easily lays a path towards a meeting with Godzilla in the future. Uh, I won't give away the post-credit sequence, but while I was smiling ear to ear, as were my kids too, it was amazing. Now, the whole thing reminds me of the Kevin Connor movies of the 70s. Uh, those were probably my first dinosaur-slash-monster movies ever, uh, maybe six years old when I first saw those. And uh, the one I compare it most to is probably The Land That Time Forgot, with good old Doug McClure. Actually, I think he was in all of them. Um, Land That Time Forgot, People That Time Forgot, At the Earth's Core, with the great deer fishing. And Warlords of Atlantis or Warlords of the Deep, depending on which version you see. Anyway, I'm rambling. Uh, thanks for producing a great show, great podcast. And I look forward to hearing this episode about Skull Island in the future. Thanks. Hey, Derek and everyone out there in Monster Kid Radio Land. This is Chris McMillan from the Shadow Over Portland calling to get in on the conversation about Kong, Skull Island. Now, I saw this movie last weekend and really enjoyed it, but I'm not going to spend too much time gushing over the film. Just, you know, it, it's, it's a great time. But instead, what I want to do is talk to some of those fans of the original 1933 King Kong movie who haven't seen the movie yet and probably aren't going to. Guys, gals, it's okay. I was right there with you. I'm a big fan of the 33 original because I think it's a perfect movie. Not just a perfect monster movie, but a perfect movie. One of those cinematic, uh, cinematic moments. Well, cinematic in a way, where everything comes together. Um, so I was watching the trailer in theaters going, oh man, this is not really King Kong. And you know what? went and saw the movie, and it works in its favor. Instead of trying to retell a tale that was told to perfection over 80 years ago, this movie goes in a different direction, and it gives us some great monster battles, um, some good characterization in a very short period of time, and starts setting up a cinematic universe as well. We'll get to that in a second, but I do want to address... You know, an issue that some of you may have, and like, well, if it's not really King Kong, why call him Kong? Well, let's ignore the whole marketing thing for a moment, and uh, let's just look at it this way. Let's say you were catching the trailer last year for Skull Island, only now it was retitled, well, let's just say, Herbert, the big-ass monkey from Cranium Atoll. 
you'd be watching the trailer going, oh man, they're just ripping off Kong. And that's always going to be a problem when you're making a giant ape film. No matter what you do, everyone is going to look at it and go, wow, it's a Kong ripoff. I mean, most of the quote-unquote good Kong ripoffs admit it, if not in their marketing campaign, in their titles. That's why we've got movies like Queen Kong. We've got movies like... Um, King of Kong Island and Konga. You know, you can't do a giant ape movie without being compared to Kong. So why not just do Kong? And I think that was a good idea. Now, getting back to the cinematic universe. I'm a big Kong fan. And I don't, if, if you're like me, you don't want to live in a world where King Kong is not a part of a giant monster cinematic universe. Kong has been inspiring filmmakers, generating new fans every 10 years, you know, whatever. Every, every generation has its new Kong fans. He's been an icon for 80 years. If any giant monster deserves to be in a cinematic giant monster universe, it's Kong. So I'm just glad that they had a movie that does justice to him. Um, and let's be honest, supporting this cinematic universe means we're not only going to get Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and eventually Kong versus Godzilla, but if it does real well, they're going to expand upon it even further. And who knows, maybe we will get the classic in the making movie Kong and Godzilla versus the giant claw I mean who doesn't want to see that well I know I do (laughs) anyway Derek love what you're doing with the show I can't wait for every Thursday morning when I can have my ear holes filled with MKR goodness keep up the great work man you're knocking it out of the park every day Every week, I should say. Well, every day, too. You're an awesome guy. <laughs> anyway, to everyone out there in Monster Kid Radio Land, this is Chris McMillan from The Shadow Over Portland signing off and wishing everyone a monstrously good weekend. The cold, glossy pages of True Magazine call the killer shrew the world's most savage mammal. You'll never venture into a forest alone after you see The Killer Shrews with James Best and Ingrid Good, motion picture horror masterpiece, The Killer Shrews. The following announcement is a special bulletin direct from American International. It may be too late. Our planet may be doomed. Armies have been alerted. The hotlines are in constant use. Civilization is in chaos. The monsters are in revolt. Now a direct report. This is Jay Webb in New York. Godzilla is laying waste to the city. The citizens have never known such fear. At the same time, Rodan is attacking Moscow. The city is alert for military action. In London, Manda is spreading horror in its path. And in the Far East, Peking trembles under the wrath of Mothra. We must destroy all monsters. Yes, destroy all monsters, or our civilization will be destroyed. Destroy all monsters is a motion picture. See for yourself. It really could happen. Destroy all monsters in color from American International is rated G for general audiences. It is 1976. The American merchant vessel Petrox Explorer 
has just set sail from the port of Surabaya in search of oil. What they find will shock the world. We may be sailing into the history books. She's alive! You know, maybe my luck has changed. They will discover an uncharted island that is the home of the most incredible creature on the face of the earth. A creature called Khan. De Laurentiis presents the most exciting original motion picture event of all time. King Kong. Fantastic adventure. Over the gate! King Kong. King Kong. Unlike anything you've ever experienced before. With Jeff Bridges, Charles Groton, and introducing Jessica Lange as the beauty who charmed the beast. And starring the eighth wonder of the world, King Kong. Okay, I want to put an end cap on the Kong Skull Island conversation. Well, not really. I don't want to end it because I'd love to hear more feedback about it. If you have further thoughts about Kong Skull Island, please call it in or write it in and we can keep this conversation going. But to put a cap on this episode, the conversation about Kong Skull Island, here's my takeaway. I'm glad the movie did well. It seems to have done pretty well box office wise, and it seems like it's hitting the spot for a lot of hungry monster kids out there, whether you're an original monster kid or a latter generation monster kid like me. I think that's fantastic because Legendary Pictures, well, they were kind of in trouble. Financially, they haven't been doing so great. A lot of the movies they've been making up until this point have not been bringing in the dollars. And if Legendary doesn't survive, well, then we don't see Godzilla versus King Kong down the line, which I want to see. I want to see that film. I, I'm a huge fan of King Kong versus Godzilla, the Toho films. And I know the Toho take on King Kong is completely different than what we had here in America. The RKO version of King Kong could not be more removed from what Toho eventually did with the character in the two movies that they did. And weren't they involved in the cartoon series as well? I mean, Toho really did not turn it into a Beauty and the Beast story. They didn't really do anything like that. They just kind of turned it into, and I don't mean this derisively, just another monster. And that's okay. I, I like living in a world in which King Kong and Godzilla both can coexist. It's the crossover fan in me. I'm a comic book guy from way back. I used to love it when comic books would cross over, especially when different brands would cross over. 
And I giggled when the Punisher met Archie, when Marvel and DC would cross over Spider-Man and Superman and Silver Surfer and Green Lantern. I dig that a lot. I think that's fun. So to bring King Kong and Godzilla together, I'm on board. I want to see that. I want to see this crossover. It's not like we're ever going to get a Godzilla versus Gamera movie anytime soon, and we're never going to see Ultraman fighting any of them. So the closest I'm going to get to a crossover are these two giant myths, these giant pop culture icons, one American, one Japanese, going at it. And to get there, we have to get through this movie, and then Godzilla King of the Monsters coming up next. As a monster movie, just a straight-up monster movie, take it away from King Kong, what we know from it before, take it away from Marion C. Cooper, take it away from the 1976 or even the 2005 King Kong, as a movie by itself, it's a great popcorn film. I think it runs a little too long as a popcorn movie. Most... Well, actually, I don't know. That said, these days, you can have a two-hour film and consider it a popcorn fair blockbuster film. I guess that's what Marvel did. Guardians of the Galaxy runs a little long, doesn't it? Anyway, as a monster movie, I think it holds up fine for the spectacle alone. I'm going to go back to what I said earlier. I think the sound design, I think the sound, and I think the look, the look, the production, the technical elements of the film are what makes this movie for me. I am in awe looking at that King Kong. It makes me a little sad that it doesn't exist in real life because it's just CG, <laughs> quote unquote, just CG. I know it takes a lot of work to make CG monsters. I, I get it. But it does make me a little sad to know that there's not a little animatronic or even a stop motion or even a guy in a suit version of that Kong because I thought the Kong looked great. The Kong. King Kong. He truly was king. Really enjoyed him. I think this the other monsters in this, uh, the, the giant walking sick insect, eh, looked okay. And the skull crushers and the spider sequence. They're all right. Scroll Crusher? No, Scroll Crawlers, excuse me. See, that's how important they were to me is I get their name wrong. Skull Crawlers. Uh, okay. I mean, they looked a little bit like one of the Mutos from the first Godzilla film from Legendary, right? Anyway, I'm kind of rambling. Here's where I'm at with this. Do not go see Skull Kong Island if you're looking for deep, complex meaning. You're not going to find it. You are not going to find the connections between the female human lead and King Kong. You are not going to find the romantic adventure that you get in the 33 King Kong. You are not going to find the lust and the take on the relationships between the sexes and burgeoning manhood, really, and, and or womanhood even from 1976. You're not going to find any of that. And ultimately, I think that's okay. I think Kong's Whole Island delivered on what it promised, mostly. I think some of the Vietnam analogies and comparisons, uh, I, I'm with Paul on that one. I felt it was almost in bad taste. But it does also set the film in a particular time and, and makes it a period piece, kind of, sort of. Although, now that I think about it, and this isn't something that Paul and I talked about too much, Outside of talking about how the character of Mason is a more modern-day woman, the 1970s woman, there wasn't really a lot of reason why to set the movie at the end of the Vietnam War, was there? I mean, you get the music, which is kind of cool, I guess. Maybe it's cheaper to get that music for a soundtrack than contemporary music. But I wonder, ultimately, why that was. It's not like there aren't modern-day military conflicts we could have pulled from today. Huh. Maybe it's to get rid of the whole cell phone issue, but then... They were off on a deserted island somewhere. It's not like cell phones would have worked. I, I don't know why the movie was set there or specifically why the movie was set then. If you have any insight on that, Paul or anybody else who happens to be listening to this, call in. Let me know. I, I would love to, to hear your thoughts on it. Otherwise, I do feel like maybe, yeah, I don't want to say it's gimmicky, but it was a little gimmicky to set it for me to set it during that time period. I don't know. 
maybe it's a technology thing, like I said, cell phones and not having the most absolute up-to-date modern technology. I don't know. I do appreciate that it did seem to reference the 1976 film a little bit, which outside of Monster Kid Radio and a few people that I've spoken with after this episode, really 1976 is King Kong. It's kind of the, the black sheep of the three Kongs. I know not a lot of people dig it. I dig it, man. I think it's great. I really do enjoy it the more I think about it, but I still think the 33 film is best. Anyway, I'm starting to ramble, which you'd think somebody who's suffering from a pretty bad head cold and sore throat wouldn't do. I just get so excited talking about giant monsters. Do I think you should see Kong Skull Island? Yes. I didn't see it in 3D. I don't feel like I needed to see it in 3D, but I have heard reports that some of the 3D scenes look pretty cool. So if you have a chance to see it in 3D cheaply, why not? I'd love to hear what you thought about the 3D if you see it that way. I don't know how long the movie's going to stick around in the theater. I don't know how it's doing this week, and I don't know how it's going to do this weekend. But if you do get a chance to see it, I would recommend it. I, I think if you're a fan of monster movies, thumbs up. If you're a deep, lifelong fan of King Kong, Ah, uh, maybe a thumb kind of cocked to the side a little bit. Does that make sense? Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the conversation that I had with Paul, and I hope you enjoyed what we heard from some of the other listeners of Monster Kid Radio. I appreciate everybody contributing to the show. Thank you. So that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio, which means soon I can give my voice a break and go lay down and take some cold medicine. But before we do that, I want to tell everybody, you can find out everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio by going to monsterkidradio.net. Here's where you're going to find our contact information. So if you want to write in the way that Dominique or Chris said at the beginning of the episode, you can do that by emailing me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Or if you have some thoughts about the episode that you want to express through a voicemail, you can do that too. Our voicemail line is 503 503- Four seven nine five six five seven. That's five zero three four seven nine five M K R. Also on our website, there's a link to our Patreon campaign. This is how you can support the show financially, help us pay for some of our hosting costs and other ongoing expenses that we have here producing the podcast. One of the things that you get as a reward for being a patron, and this is pretty fitting since we're talking about giant monsters this week, if you support the show at the Toho level or higher, your name gets included in the monthly executive producer roll call, which we haven't done in a while. So let's kick that off right now by saying Monster Kid Radio was brought to you this month courtesy of the following executive producers. Mitch Gonzalez, George McGowan, Thomas Prasard, Tom and Eileen, Terry Mount, Tracy and Scott Morris, Joseph Perry, Jeremy Lamastis, Jeffrey Owens, Sean Hode, Richard Chamberlain, and John Kilgallen. Thanks, guys, for being executive producers of Monster Kid Radio and helping to support the show at the Toho level or higher. And listeners, if you go to monsterkidradio.net, over on the left, you're going to see all the supporters of Monster Kid Radio who have supported the show at the AIP level or higher. There's actually a list of names right there. You'll see some familiar names because I just read some of them off, but there are other people in there at the AIP level as well. So again, thank you to everybody who helps support the show through Patreon. You can also help support the show by giving us an honest review over in the iTunes store. As of this recording, we are still at 76 reviews in iTunes. If you are a user of iTunes, please consider heading over there and giving us an honest review. I'd love to get to 100 reviews in the iTunes store by Halloween. So if you're an iTunes user and you haven't done it yet, please consider giving us an honest review over there. Also, if you're on Facebook, we have a Facebook page and a Facebook group. You can find links to that on our website as well. Like the page and join the group. Get involved with conversations of other listeners of Monster Kid Radio between episodes. It's all right there. Now, 
I know last week I said there's going to be some new features on the website, and that's still coming soon, so stay tuned. And stay tuned for next week's episode, because I'm going to be having a conversation with another independent filmmaker. I love talking to independent creators, writers, filmmakers, artists. I love talking to people who love these movies and have found a way to work their love of this type of cinema into their own creations. We have Seb Godain on the show next week. He is one of the people behind the upcoming independent horror film, Like Animator, and he and I are going to be talking about the 1963 film, The Slime People. From caves and sewers come the slime people. The kill, kill, kill. There is no escape from the slime people. The slime people. Stop the horror of the slime people. Come back for that. It'll be happening next week on the show. After that, I've got a few other things lined up. And you know what? I'll announce it on Facebook first, and then we'll go from there. And by the way, remember, it's Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards season. If you haven't voted in the Rondo Awards yet, head over to RondoAward.com and cast your vote. Monster Kid Radio is up for another Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Award for Best Multimedia. That's category number 18. And keep in mind, you do not have to vote in every category. Vote for one or two. Vote for your favorites. I'd appreciate your support, and most importantly, I'd highly recommend people go in and vote to induct the late, great Vince Rotolo into the Monster Kid Hall of Fame. You can suggest up to six names, but I think it's really important that we recognize Vince Rotolo of the B-Movie cast did so much for Monster Kids, for fans of Monster Movies, fans of B-Movies, podcasters. He developed one heck of a community that's still going strong. Even though he's no longer here, his presence is still felt through the Facebook community, through the B-Movie cast family. Even the podcast has continued. So the spirit of Vince Rotolo is still with us. Let's give Vince Rotolo the man, the honor he deserves, and see if we can get him inducted into the Monster Kid Hall of Fame. Okay, my voice really is about to go, so I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. I want to thank everybody for listening. Again, thank you for sticking around and bearing with this voice. I hope by next week it'll be better. So cross your fingers and your tentacles, and remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives. <sighs> 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Kahuna Ha Ha. 
that belongs to the band Stories from Shame Hill. They're a cool surf band based out of Amsterdam. You can find them at storiesfromshamehill.bandcamp.com or at their website, www.storiesfromshamehill.nl. Check out the album the song comes from, Same, Same, But Different, or check out their live EP, Made in Amsterdam. However you check them out, let them know that you heard them here on Monster Kid Radio. Talk to everybody next week. <laughs> 